This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Space, the final frontier. Specimen gathering mission on planet Alpha 177. Mr. Spock is much stronger than the ordinary human being. Aroused, his great physical strength could kill, but it's a risk I'll have to take. Something bothering you, Mr. Spock? End of day. The freedom of speech is being taken away. Welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day, all the way from the wastelands of California. My name is Michael, and I am a mere figment of your imagination. Hello to you on YouTube. I look forward to once again serve you those sounds of salvation live and indirect. Not direct, indirect. Since we are a little bit further away this time, you can find the podcast version of this program by searching End of Days on all popular media platforms or go to michaeldeacon.com for further assistance. Tonight we will take a trip back into ufology, a subject that was beginning to bloom in America in the 1940s. History does seem to repeat itself. Wouldn't you say, folks? My guest this evening is Raymond Shemansky. He is a four-decade U.S. government senior scientist turned paranormal researcher and author. He's a former engineer at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is where his skepticism ended. He is also the author of the book, Fifty Shades of Grey, Evidence of Extraterrestrial Visitation to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and Beyond. Hello to you out there, those listening on YouTube, and hello to those who will catch this on Sunday night on the replay on multiple networks heard around the world. That means about five people. Mike Rogers draws assignment tonight as he joins us in this very special evening. You know, Mr. Mike Rogers from the most popular UFO case in history. Let's bring Mike in. Mike, are you out there? I sure am. I'm right here. Incredible. I'm glad you are here, my friend. Thank you for spending some time with us all out here. And also, I was out around the Yuma area a few weeks ago to watch some fights out there. Uh well, I'm glad to be here. Amazing. And let's bring in Ray. Let's patch him through here. Ray, are you alive? Absolutely. Perfect. Now, I'm glad you are here, Ray. And I want to welcome you to the program. Thank you so much for being a part of the program and sharing some of your time with us all here tonight, my friend. 
Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Perfect, perfect. And of course, you are familiar with Mike Rogers, correct? Uh, yes. Uh, he was with uh, Travis the night of the uh, incident. That's right. I'm glad to have both of you on here tonight. This is a very special evening, like I just said. And I knew it would be perfect to bring both of you guys here in together, since both of you are deep, deep into the game here of ufology. Yes. yes. Do I get to ask uh, Mike Rogers some questions later? <laughs> of course, you could ask him anything you'd like. We'll definitely be getting, yeah, we'll be getting into all of that as we go along here. And Raymond, um, let's go back into your roots before we begin, where these topics, the paranormal and ufology, were these things introduced to you at, uh, say, an early age, or was this something that you discovered uh, by your own curiosity? Um, well, as a child, I used to sit down in the back porch of the house on uh, 8686 Woodlawn in Detroit and look out onto the skies. Of course, it was different back then. There were very few street lights. Most people shut their lights off. And, you know, when the space race started to happen, it was just natural to be out there hoping to catch a glimpse of a capsule heading across the horizon. But it was in uh, about 1973 when I first set foot on Wright-Patterson Air Force Base that I was introduced to the topic by the person who was assigned to me as my mentor. Very nice. Very nice. And Mike, are you are you hearing this okay? I'm just wondering. Yes, I certainly am. Okay, perfect. Just curious. And um, Ray, you also had experienced the sighting. Was this before or after you began to research any of these subjects? Well, my personal sighting happened in 2011. So, you know, if we go back to 1973 to 2011, that's a very long time. But what had happened is, is, is the first week that I was at Wright-Patterson, I was a cooperative education student from the University of Detroit. And we were in a building, which was called Building 22, and it was composed of two two-story office buildings, uh, one on the... Uh, north end, one on the south end, and in between was this hangar, which was about, mm, say, 250 feet in length. So the the office buildings basically formed bookends around this very empty hangar. And that very first week, my mentor said, hey, I want to show you where the coffee shop is. So he leads me out the door into the hangar through which we have to walk to get to the other side where the coffee shop was. And we're going down this little ramp, and he turns to me and says, have you heard about our aliens? Interesting. So I'm a co-op student. I don't, you know, I, an engineering student, I have no idea what he's talking about. So he goes on to explain, well, there was this crash out west in 1947, and they brought the occupants and their machines here to Wright-Patterson for evaluation and possible exploitation. So I said, you know, do tell, go on. And so he said, well, they keep them in the tunnels. Well, now that's got my full attention. And I said, we have tunnels? And he says, yeah, we've got tunnels. That's that's where they keep them. I said, well, can we go see these aliens in the tunnels? And he says, well, no, we can't. Well, the obvious question then was, well, why not? And he says, well, they're a secret. And I said, if they're a secret, how do you know about it? <laughs> right. Good question. Yeah. So he goes on to tell me, well, you know, there's this Project Blue Book and and that's connected and they're doing, they have done this investigation. And I think so that have been about four years since Blue Book ended from 69 to 73. And he said, everyone's just well aware that the materials from, from the crash out west were actually brought here to Wright-Patterson. So it was a widely known community secret, as it were. 
And as I went along in, in the weeks and months of my first co-op session, I asked a lot of folks about it. And sure enough, everyone pretty much had an awareness of, you know, Project Blue Book and, and uh, you know, there being a connection uh, to an investigation and materials that had been brought to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Yes. So that was the start of it for me. And that's when it all kicked off for you. Yeah, it did. I became really curious, but, you know, it wasn't a real focus mm -hmm. for me. It was like, okay, it's in the back of my mind. And if I go to a different place, uh, TDY called, that's temporary duty. And I go off somewhere and, you know, maybe I'm in a different lab because I worked for Air Force Research Laboratory for most of my career. And we had dealings with other Department of Defense laboratories and had occasion to visit them and do meetings and, you know, swap information. So I was always like peeking around a corner or asking questions that, you know, were kind of tangential to this whole thing. But it didn't really, it didn't really smack me in the face until I about see. 1997. Yes, that's when you started connecting the dots, I, I, I believe, right? Well, you know, we had the Phoenix Lights. Yes, that's another. Yeah, that's and another. though there were a lot of other things mm -hmm. out there, that just became you know, personal for me because I was making trips out to a site we had in Mesa, Arizona, and I had occasion to go to Phoenix a number of times. And so that that is when I really dove in, you know, uh, okay, okay. head first. Yes, we'll, we'll corner around that topic a little bit uh, further as we go along. Mike has a lot to say about the Phoenix Lights as well. We talked about that uh, extensively here on the program, and he has his own opinion on the whole event. I'll let him get into that a little later here, in a few moments, but you brought up Project Blue Beam, and it seems like Blue the, Book. Or Blue, Blue Book. Book. Yeah, there we go. Uh, I was going to mention uh, the History Channel, they released that series, the Project Blue Beam uh, series there. Blue Book. Or Blue Book. I don't know. Why do I keep calling it Blue Beam? Uh, I, keep, I don't know. I keep thinking of you the know, wrong you thing. You know a secret we don't. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I keep saying that. I'm not sure why. But you remember... There's that popular TV series now. Uh, I'm not quite sure if you have uh, personally seen that. Religiously. Really? Okay, so you've been watching this religiously then? Yes, sir. Okay, I tried watching it a couple times, and it really didn't catch my attention. Not because of the subject matter. I just wasn't really compelled by it. I'm not quite sure why. Okay. I'm trying to figure out why exactly it wasn't it didn't really catch my attention too much. Um, Mike, have you seen that? Uh, which program are we talking about here? Oh, Mike's not following us now either. <laughs> What's that? Can the you hear Project me? The Project Blue Book television show. Yeah, the Project. Oh, okay. Okay, you could hear that I now. Just, uh, I just wanted to make sure of that. Okay, I, perfect. No, I haven't. I haven't been watching that. Actually, you know, I kind of swore off TV altogether here a few years ago. Okay. Uh, I watch it a little bit, not much, because uh, it's a whole different philosophy. <laughs> yeah, see, anyway, Mike is I quite skeptical. Yeah, Mike is is no, no. I'm I'm not skeptic. I'm not a skeptic. <laughs> I'm a realist. You okay? I'm a UFO He's a realist. realist. There we go. Yeah. Yes, the Project Blue Book TV series. Yes, um, I know about. Mm -hmm. You know, I I I was had a lot to do with Alan Hynek, and uh, I'm very familiar with all that. Perfect. Before the before the program or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Earlier in the program, I mentioned the popularity of flying saucers. And the little green men, now our nation's history, the topic of UFOs and extraterrestrial life is probably more popular today than any other time in America, thanks to TV shows like the one I mentioned. Uh, the channel, the History Channel, 
they seem to really be jumping on the bandwagon the last couple or the last decade or so. And, you know, I always credit the TV series Ancient uh, Aliens. They've made a killing with the series. Um, I'm not even quite sure how long that show has been on. And and you've been on that, that TV show too, correct? Uh, Raymond, correct? Yeah, I was on an okay. episode called Area 52. It aired on the 1st of June last year. So they they wanted somebody uh, who could represent Wright Patterson because the concept for the show was where is all that stuff that's been recovered now? And, you know, there's a place in Utah they point to in Area 51 and they point to Wright Patterson Air Force Base. So they wanted somebody to represent Wright Patterson. And that was me. But if we can just flash back momentarily to the uh, Project Blue Book show, I'd really like to comment on that. Yeah, go ahead. You know, um, I enjoy the show for the characterization and the time period they're representing and all the nice uh, scenery and the clothes and everything. It's all, you know, period piece. So I think it's really uh, uh, snazzy. But I think for the general public, if the general public is tuning in to try to get a, a history lesson, they're not getting it. What they're getting is, is, is something that's very confounding for the first 55 minutes. And there's really very little basis in reality for what they show you in the first 55 minutes. The, the the golden nugget is really the last five minutes where they'll reference the actual case that was used as a very loose structure for what you just watched. And they'll say, you know, well, this happened like uh, Calvin Parker, Pascagoula, and, uh, you know, they'll show some actual uh, footage or an interview or a, a real piece of data from that show. Uh, so that's really the only historical nugget you're going to get out of there. The first 55 minutes of the show do nothing but confound somebody who thinks they're looking at a fact-based uh, show. It's not that. So that's my that's my take. That on sounds it. very typical. Yeah. See, that's another thing I was concerned about was how authentic uh, the t the series was, and that's kind of another reason why I just stopped watching. Well, I'm very yeah, it, familiar with that, not the program, but I can tell you this, all Hollywood producers, whether TV, movies, whoever, they pretty much do what they want, and it's all for sensationalism. Yeah, that's another thing I was quite skeptical about, that, what you just said right there. And the reason why I kept saying Project Bluebeam is because I was going to do a show in about a week. Blue Book. Yeah, but Blue Beam, it, it's a oh, really? totally different thing. Yeah, I, I, I recall now, I was completely uh, fascinated with, with something about that. And I'll explain on a later show, but that's one of the reasons why I kept referring back uh, to Project Blue Beam for those out there listening. And yes, wrong, completely well, wrong thing there. I'm sorry about that, folks. Travis Wallen got hit by a blue beam. That's, an, <laughs> that's true. That's We'll get into that too as well here as we go along here. And uh, in terms of... of popular shows like again ancient aliens i'm always thrown back that it's gone this long uh, are you at all surprised ray that it's still going strong all these years later no i think it's an interesting show in fact uh, it was my older son who said dad you got to see the show and it's at the time they were investigating things that you could um physically look at like you know they were in machu picchu and all these places that had these gigantic monolithic stones that had been pieced together and you couldn't put a a piece of uh, paper through it and so there were there were some very spectacular things that could be uh physically uh, looked at and measured and put a little science to it now 
my background is electrical and electronics engineering. So that's my bachelor's degree. And both of my sons hold bachelor's of science degrees in electrical engineering. So, you know, they're, they're scientifically based. So those first couple of years uh, were, were very stimulating. And it was like, oh, yeah, you know, so I could examine it. It was it, they were showing phenomena that that would subject you could you, you could subject it to some science. But then. You know, they start talking about Enoch and Anunnaki, and I, yes. and my eyes were just rolling to the back of my head. Uh, <laughs> so, so they just started to get away from that. And I guess you know, there's just so much physical evidence that that you can examine and is out there. So, uh, you know, it's great they've expanded their horizons, but you know, I don't think you can, you can always hit your target 100 percent of the time. Yeah, and I like the show, by the way. It's not that Me I did. Yeah, it's not that I dislike it. It's just that I'm quite surprised and taken back that it's still as popular as it was when it first started. That that's very surprising. But now the topic is so mainstream. That's a surprise. Yes, it is. And and I want to say that Giorgio is a nicer person in person than he even appears on television. He's just a super troop. Yeah, I got a I got a story to tell about that. A good well, story though, not experience. a bad story. No, no, that's, it's a, the, that's the experience I had with him. It's a very good, funny story, and I'll mention him in a moment here. Um, if you remember, Ray, speaking of media going wild, there even was some thought about our current president, that he was going to be the so-called disclosure president on a numerous on numerous matters of interest to the general public, like JFK to 9-11 to extraterrestrial life. I heard it all, but... We saw zero results from any of these facets, and quite frankly, I don't think we will ever get any sort of disclosure coming from any government, well, some governments out there have, but from the government here in America, we won't see that sort of uh, disclosure. Who was uh, uh, talking about uh, Trump being that, that, that president, that disclosure president? There was a few individuals out there who were making these claims, mostly people just uh, on the internet, but I don't want to... I don't want to um, name any names here, those specific individuals who were going around saying those sort of things that made those sort of um, theories sort of popular. What was that, Mike? It's a sort of a grapevine thing. Correct. And Ray, go ahead. Well, if you recall, um, Hillary Clinton's, one of her, her planks in her platform was that she was going to disclose the, the UFO thing. And you recall that her husband, oh, yes. Bill, Bill tried to, okay, and, and Gerald Ford tried to, and um, Carter tried to. So what that tells you is, is that the information is outside their reach. And the reason it's outside their reach is this little phrase called need to know. So whomever is in charge of that information has deemed that the president of the United States does not have the need to know. And that started uh, right after Truman, uh, you know, got the government interested at the highest levels in the UFO phenomena. So the president doesn't have need to know. And no matter how high connected you are, it doesn't matter if your, your husband was the president prior to you running, whoever is in control of that information has said it's not coming out. So uh, I would just basically take a deep breath and don't count on any president coming up with that information anytime soon. Yeah, they get stonewalled. Exactly. And again, yeah. the phrase is need to know. And that's the way it works in the government. And I spent nearly four decades in the government. Right. And, and you learn that like in week two. 
That's pretty uh, wild. And I think it's more than that, though. You think so, Mike? I think, yeah. You know, it's very obvious to me that the presidents are, are just basically peacemakers. Uh, there's a certain amount of power in their hands, but they don't really call the shots. The ones that call the shots are, are telling him, yeah, you don't need to know, and you don't need to say if you do know. We don't want you to. Amazing. And it seems like there's a long history of presidents who are very interested in extraterrestrials going way back through time, uh, like President Franklin Roosevelt. It, it seems like not only him, but also like Dwight Eisenhower, that's rumored to have met extraterrestrials in Roswell. I'm not sure how true that is, but these sort of uh, things online you read about, it seems like a lot of these presidents have a, a long history of being interested in the subject matter or having their own encounter. Very odd stuff. My, yeah, my take on that is that they all would like to do that, and they all feel the need for that, but they're just told they can't. They're either not told or they're told if they do know anything that they can't say anything because they're not the ones that are really in charge. Go ahead, Ray. Well, in his, in his famous speech, Clinton said, I've asked them, I want to know, and they haven't told me. And that's that's sort of the quote. So, yeah, you're right. They tried, but it's not going to happen unless the guys who control the information decide to give it that's up. Right. And, and, and I think all of these great conferences about disclosure, yes. disclosure is coming. <laughs> you know, it's a money grab. Uh, not one person who's who's on a disclosure panel or who's talking about disclosure, and that's from top to bottom, has anything to disclose. I'm sorry they don't. And unless they get in a position where they're controlling the information, it's just not going to happen. So you can have a billion disclosure conferences, but it, it's not going to happen. Yes, I have my conference. No. I have my conference story to, to share with both of you here. We're almost at that part. But before we do, all we got was musician from the band Blink-182, uh, Tom DeLong, to talk about uh, disclosure. Everybody was thrilled in the media. Everybody was propping the To The Stars Academy. I'm sorry, but I'm not exactly on that bandwagon. Ray, how do you feel about that? I'm taking a wait and see attitude. Um, again, if you start with the premise that the information is tightly controlled at the top and the president uh, doesn't get it, then why would I give it to a rock musician? <laughs> Correct. Just, just apply you some got common that right. sense. And they keep telling me yeah. about, you know, Elizondo or whatever his yes. name is and, mm -hmm. you know, all the stuff that he's disclosing. And they keep saying, you know, originally they kept saying a government employee. Well, he'd already resigned, so he was no longer a government employee. So that was a little bit misdirection. It was the end. Yeah, it was the it, that angle they were playing there, Ray. Yeah, they were playing that. And and so I'm just taking a wait and see attitude. And, and you know, I got, I say Godspeed to him. You know, I hope it works out. Uh, I, I don't care who breaks the story. Right. I'm not sure we're, we're ready for the story to be broken, but, you know, that's another discussion. So I'm just taking, taking a wait and see, and I'm not going to criticize anybody who, who's trying to find the truth. Correct. Definitely not. Yeah, that wouldn't be fair to them. Exactly. No, and I, I wouldn't. I'm just mm -hmm. saying I'm just I'm, I'm right in the middle. I'm like the um, I'm like a Switzerland here. I'm neutral <laughs> and I'm just waiting to see what happens. <laughs> yes, we're both bipartisan in that. In that case, we just want to see results. That's all. Yep. Yeah, I don't think anybody would get too mad at that. We just want to see results. Well, big, that's all. Yeah. The big problem is, is that uh, disclosure would smack of political honesty. And that's not going to happen. Yes. <laughs> honesty. That's a. Um, 
That is the mother of all topics and the problems that we face in America, really, is just honesty. A lot of us are not all, not all of us, but a lot of people out there are just not honest. They're not genuine, especially in the political realm. It's very cutthroat, just like show business. You know, I have a, I have a burning question for Mike Rogers, if, if I might. And it's, it's based upon a recent experience I've had. Okay, I, I was ahead. a... Um, I was a speaker at the uh, UFO Megacon in Laughlin, Nevada, a couple weeks ago, and there were several individuals throughout the week. There were actually 50 speakers. It was, it was quite frankly, one of the best conferences I've ever been to for a number of reasons. But there were a lot of the, the speakers there uh, were experiencers, and many mentioned what they call a mil-ab, a military abduction, where people in you know military garb or military type garb take you uh g treat you to a drug fueled interrogation uh sometimes intimidation and then drop you back off you know from whence uh, they took you and so uh there's also evidence of that when when i i had a chance to uh talk to colonel charles halt and all that the rendlesham came out that peniston burroughs and all those folks uh, had been interrogated many times under, uh, you know, drugs. And, and Halt told me, hey, if I'd have known that was going on, I'd have made some noise about it. So the question I have for Mr. Rogers is, is thus. Do you have any knowledge uh, of anybody in your party uh, that night on the 5th of November 1975 who was a witness uh, to the event, including yourself and Travis and Steve Pierce and everybody else, is there any knowledge that you have that any of you were ever interrogated uh, by unknowns, uh, possibly using, uh, you know, drugs as as an enhancer? Great question. Well, I've never I, I've never been given drugs. I've never been interrogated that way, but I have been interrogated extensively by government people. And they have they have told me their title and their where they come, where they come from. And uh I've been intimidated. I've been persecuted. Uh, I've been threatened. Uh, actually, most of that is in a book that Travis wrote, which is called uh, uh, "Well, the First Fire in the Sky." Fire. No, the first the first book was called "The Walton Experience." Yes, the Walton Experience. Correct. Yeah, and it was in that but book. The Fire second, in the Sky. Oh, that started it. Fire in the Sky is the book where it's mostly contained. And uh, okay. Travis didn't really go into it extremely, uh, extremely, but uh, he talks about there about about the uh, pressure that I've had from the government. You know, the funny thing is, is that Phil Class zeroed in on me, not Walton. He zeroed in on me because he he thought I was smarter than everybody else. I was more clever than everybody else, and and so he just got on this bandwagon of persecuting me, and he did a pretty good job of it. And the, he, as a result, he himself sent a number of people to try and uh, pressure me in a number of different ways. And, of course, I'm a person of principle, and I consider myself pretty tough, and I never gave in to any of it. In fact, I figured out ways to counteract it. And some of these people went home with their tail between their legs because they knew it was all intimidation to start with. But, yes, the answer to your question is yes. And I'll tell you something else. Travis Walton's abduction doesn't make sense as a total or only alien abduction. You know, Fire in the Sky, the movie, does not tell the story. So I'm very familiar with how Hollywood just does whatever they want. Right. And, uh, of course, the book Fire in the Sky tells the real story. But he'll tell you, if you've ever talked to him in person, if you ever asked him directly, 
will tell you that he can't tell you if he was abducted by aliens or, or humans because he encountered both. And the people who seem to have him first for these itty-bitty things definitely must have been aliens. But he was they, the human people took, or human-like people, took the Travis away from these aliens and whisked him away to another place and took him away from the aliens. And then they dealt with him after that. And those people were dressed in blue. Hmm. Very interesting. Like uniforms, but, but yeah. not Air Force uniforms. Yes. Um, I, I actually had the chance to spend uh, the afternoon with Travis because um, I had met Jennifer Stein and uh, she uh, introduced me to Travis. And we went to the site of uh, the incident uh, to shoot photo stills for Jen's movie. So I got to spend the afternoon with Travis. Um, it actually is an entire chapter uh, in my book, which is called Fifty Shades of Greys, G-R-E-Y-S. <laughs> yes. yeah. And it's the, the subtitle, um, Evidence of Extraterrestrial Visitation to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and Beyond. But there's an entire chapter which is full of um, photographs that I took, you know, Travis and myself in a buddy photo at the place where, you know, he was taken away. And so I had a one-on-one -on -one with him, you know, could look him in the eyes, listen to the timbre of his voice, ask him questions. Uh, as we stood on the spot, he told me the entire story, you know, as it happened. So, oh, wow. you know, I do, I do have a firsthand, um, you know, introduction to the whole thing by Travis himself. And as I've told everybody who will listen, there's no better case in my mind for many reasons uh, than the Travis Walton case. Yes. We've talked about that, yeah. me and Mike in the past, and we'll get into that in a moment here. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that. I was going to ask Ray a question. Oh, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Yes. Ray, you, you, the title of your book, is that a double meaning? Oh, <laughs> it, it, it gets worse, uh, Mike. Um, because I, I, stole, I stole it. I stole the title and I added an S to it. But it turns out in the United States and in Britain, you cannot copyright a book title. Ah, so the, the title of my, the title of my second book is going to make you giggle because it's called 50 Shades because it's a trilogy. And the second book is called 50 Shades of Grey's Victoria's Secret Truth. Oh, I love the wordplay. Uh -huh. <laughs> that's actually good marketing. When I first saw it, I thought that's pretty good. And I looked up online and, and some people were kind of criticizing of the name of the book saying, oh, you, you're not going to be taken seriously and so forth and so forth. And I just thought, oh, wow, look at this guy. He lacks a sense of humor. That's never a good sign. <laughs> Those are the people who lack care a sense of humor. Uh, some of the, the critics out there, Mike, when I did some research on Ray, they were criticizing his book about the title, saying things like, oh, I'm not going to they're not going to take you seriously, Ray, for the name of your book. But that's, you know, that's kind of nonsense. Everything is really. No, but you said that he lacks mm -hmm. a sense of humor. Oh, yes. People like that, that can't laugh at things. They are always people that lack uh, joy in their lives. They are. They're always these very miserable, joyless people. It's it's awful. Well, you you know me. And a couple of times I've been a guest on your show. Uh, I joke a lot. That's right. And I find humor in everything, and and that's part of why I guess maybe you like me. Of course. But, uh, I I don't believe Ray here is humorless. No, Ray has a great sense of humor, and that's that's a good quality to have. Oh yes, it's a very important quality to have because life is already difficult as it is, and if you can't find any humor in yourself yeah. or life, then 
it's going to be a tough road for you, my friend. Well, the purpose uh, of the – go ahead, Mike. Oh, I was just going to say uh, I, I want to get your email address before we get off here. Oh, no uh, problem. Whenever yes. that's going to be. I'll, I'll forward because, it to you. Uh, I have a, a, a thing that I've written. It's, it's, it's copyrighted, but it's not a book or anything. It probably will be someday, but the title of it is, is The First Event. Sweet. The first event of the Phoenix Lights. Yes, the Phoenix that's, Lights. Uh, oh. That's what I hone in on. I think that would be extremely valuable to you. Certainly, definitely interesting. I mean, and it does have bits of humor here and there. Some of it, I think, is humorous. Uh, it may not be to everybody, but <laughs> it's in there nonetheless. And uh, not overwhelming. But the purpose of the humor, basically, besides the fact that I can't keep from it, <laughs> is that it spices up what otherwise is, is taken by the skeptics and the believers nowadays as, as kind of a, an unwanted thing. Uh, I explain the Phoenix Lights from top to bottom, and I, and I had to explain it with some ways that just are unconventional in a, in a lot of thinking, but they're all, it's all scientific, it's all very straight, it's all very truthful. Uh, and uh, since you haven't heard any of this thing yet, uh, you might know that, I don't know, maybe you've heard, um, the MUFON Journal is, will soon be putting uh, a scientific abstract that I wrote along with a, a, a NASA astronomer. Uh, it's the, uh, basically, it's titled The uh, Identity of the First Event Object, you know, the First Event Object of the Phoenix Lights. And uh, it's based on facts. It's based on documentation that nobody else has seen before. Well, I'm sure a whole lot of people have seen it, but they just tucked it away. And uh, the skeptics don't like it because they're the ones that basically are the, the biggest ones who have ignored. And the believers don't like it because it kind of upsets their whole concept of the Phoenix Lights. It doesn't me, and it all started when I observed the Phoenix Lights object from a hilltop in Prescott, Arizona. Wow. And after I did, I researched it like nobody else has ever researched it for the entire 20, 22 years since. I have every scrap of documentation I ever ever on anywhere, everything, and I have come to some very startling conclusions, but also some very unusual and very good conclusions. And um, altogether, it's uh, very very different. And the only thing that people have seen so far, basically, is uh, the abstract. It's very scientific. It doesn't have any any humor in it. It doesn't have any. It's very concise. It's scientific, and uh, some people take offense to that. By the way, well, he was by the way, in 1997, that was a great year for ufology. All sorts of things happened. Crazy things happened in 97, if you recall. Yeah, a lot happened that year. Oh, yes. And Ray here apparently knows an awful, an awful lot about the Phoenix Lights himself. Sure does. He sure does. And that's what I want to hear about. We'll, we'll talk about the, him. Yeah, we'll talk about the Phoenix Lights right now since we are on the subject. Even though I was going to share my hilarious uh, Conscious Life Expo story. But we'll we'll get into that a little later here as we go along. Well, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, it's okay. Let, let's let's go there because I think it is very interesting. Uh, a great year for ufology, even though some pretty terrible things happened, like Heaven's Gate. Oh yeah, yes. that was bad. Oh yes, that's also another thing that was pretty insane during the time. And you, of course, had the Hellbob Comet that drove the whole madness along with the whole Heaven's Gate cult. Um, Ray, do you remember that time in 97, hearing about uh, the cult and Marshall Applewhite? Uh, the, you said the cult? Yes. 
The cult. The cult, yes. Yes, yeah, C-U-L-T. Okay, the cult. Yeah, of course, yes. And and they all drank the Kool-Aid, right? Right. Yes. No, yes, no, I no. remember that. No, that's, that's different. That's different. Why do you say that? He's talking about Applewhite. He's talking about the... the uh, Heaven scale. You know, said that the, yeah. Yes. The, the people that drank Kool-Aid was down in South America. Jonestown. Well, it, it's an George, expression. George Jones. Uh, Mike, yeah, it's just Mike an expression. Rogers, Mike Rogers, drinking the Kool Aid is an expression. Yeah, and it it has many it has many meanings. Okay. Some it's a, in some cases it's a literal uh, statement, meaning they drank the poison. Right. Uh, in in other sense, it means uh, to maybe accept a philosophy a philosophy blindly or a religion blindly without actually investigating it. Yeah. Okay. So. I'm sorry if if I misled you by saying that. Okay. All right. That's what I thought. All right. But yeah, you cleared that up. Very good. I love that expression, by the way. It's still commonly used today. Yes. And I just want to say, uh, Mike Rogers, uh, our host will definitely give you my email address. Right. And I'll be happy to, to look over anything uh, you wish to send me. Okay. Well, what is your take on the Phoenix Lights? Yeah. Um, it's very strange, uh, the history with the Phoenix Lights, because... Um, you know, they started to issue uh, statements out of Luke Air Force Base, and the public affairs yeah. person is always put up front. And it doesn't, you know, he is like the 10th guy on the totem pole. And it, the word comes down from the top that says, okay, no, we don't know anything about it. So that's the first thing they say. And, well, you know, if you're a government employee uh, and you see this, uh, you can use what's called the global to find the actual email address for the person anywhere in the world who works for the government. So when those things started to come out of Luke Air Force Base, and I went, well, that's crap. <laughs> so, yeah. so so, it what I didn't have to look for the public affairs official email address. It's in the global. So I look it up. I go, oh, you know, lieutenant or captain so-and-so. So I'd send them like an email and go, hey, this is Ray Shemansky from Wright-Patterson. And hey, I saw this thing. And, you know, is there any inside scoop, you know, trying to use the the, the grapevine? And it was like, you know, uh, no, uh, uh, this is the official statement. So then after a while, when you know, you know at one point, I, I think I sent him an email and I'm just going to paraphrase it because I can't remember it directly. I said, I'm embarrassed to tell anyone I work for the Air Force because the crap you're putting out to explain this thing is making all of us look bad. Please stop. That's so funny. And, and of course, of course, you're going to get you're going to get nothing but crickets. And and you know because now now they're not even they're putting your stuff in a spam folder. But at least it made me feel better. So that's where it started for me. It was just to go, dude, what's going on here? This is stupid. And then I start reading of it. And I actually was going to come out there for a Dr. Kitai presentation and my flight got, got um, delayed. Oh, that's terrible. Well, it, it's, it's terrible, but there's a silver lining. Now the years go by, I've never talked to her and I show up at the international UFO Congress. She's a speaker. She's behind the table. No one's there, but her behind the table. And you know, the other speakers are all around selling books and stuff. I go up to her and I introduce myself. And this is like 2012, maybe 2013. And I, I say, hey, you know, um, I tried to get here 10 years ago and my flight got canceled. And I tell her this sob story. She pulls out this um, booklet, this three-ring binder, and goes, do you have any time? And I go, yeah. She goes, sit down. For the next hour, Dr. Kitai shows me everything she has on the Phoenix Lights that's in that booklet and explains it all 
one on one. That was that was my indoctrination into the Phoenix Lights. Well, what what key things came across in that? Well, uh, that she was one of the the first people to announce her findings. Now, whether or not she was the first person to notice it, but, you know, if if I can split hairs here, my recollection was uh, that – uh, she was the, the first person to, you know, push these issues out there, uh, you know, to step out of uh, the the uh, the shadows that she had been recording this stuff for, again, I don't know how many years, two years, three years at that point. Uh, you know, she, she brought that evidence forward. And then, you know, I saw other things. I saw uh, documentaries on television where, you know, they're interviewing uh, the guy in a wheelchair and he goes, yeah, you know, we saw this thing and, and it went from mountain tip to mountain tip. And, you know, they could estimate how far away it was, do some simple math and figure out, well, this thing was a mile and a half wide. So, you know, my my initial indoctrination was news reports, reading stuff on the net. Uh, trying to get stuff out of Luke Air Force Base, Dr. Kitai, and then some of the documentaries. And that's kind of where it's been. You know, I never really, I never really try to take the story to bedrock after that. I just kind of absorbed some things and some things I could discount others. I thought, yeah. And then I got to talk to some witnesses that uh, uh, James Fox introduced me to, a mother and a daughter. And uh, they told me their personal story of being on the highway and, uh, you know, the ship going over them. So like, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Yes. And, and by the yeah. way, to put some context into this, for those that don't know, the Phoenix lights was the most witnessed and a most important mass UFO event in modern history. Would you say that is true, Ray? Uh, Yes, it, uh, maybe maybe if uh, Fatima, I heard a guy, L.A. Marzulli, tell us a couple weeks ago that mm-hmm. at the um, UFO Megacon, uh, say that the uh, miracle of Fatima was a UFO. And, and if oh that's my. the case, if that's the case, that probably has more witnesses. But uh, in my mind, I would say <laughs> the Phoenix Lights is a close second. I would have to agree with you on that. And I, I remember just being a little boy and seeing that on the news. A late night with my father and seeing that footage, it had my my poor little mind racing. I, I couldn't even get any sleep. I kept wondering mm-hmm. what, what that was. And at that time, I was barely getting into the subject uh, thanks to my father, who's always been open-minded towards um, E.T. And, and all sorts of other things. So I do thank him for that, uh, for influencing me and opening my mind to these subject matters and I just recall being so young and watching that newscast and thinking, what on earth is that? It was a very exciting time. Yeah, I was uh, late in life when I in the Phoenix Lights. Like I said, I was on a hilltop near Prescott, Arizona. I got a really close look at it. And, you know, of course, every detail there is, not every every detail, but the concise altogether is there in this thing that I want to send, Ray, but I was going to say one thing. I was, I was waiting for him to say something that I could uh, is different from what, what anything I have. And, uh, but it, basically, he's got a concept of it that is a little different in some ways. But you know, one thing I was going to say, Ray, is that uh, you know Peter Davenport of the National UFO Reporting Center has recordings of U.S. Air Force pilots who have spilled the beans in spite of whoever was supposed to or wasn't supposed to say anything. Uh, U.S. Air Force pilots testify to being sent aloft in their jets to investigate this intruding object. 
and they come up with a whole lot of very interesting information. One of them is something I already knew from other sources, and that's that over Phoenix, it was about 9,000 feet above the desert, above the surface of the earth, about 9,000 feet. And uh, it came over the mountains considerably higher than that, and then it went lower than that as it went on down towards Casa Grande. But uh, those pilots uh, only saw one object, and a very massive object. And from a jet airplane, they couldn't say exactly how big it was, but it was generally in the range that everybody else did. And uh, one of the pilots uh, was very, very shaken by it. He was so shaken they had to be helped out of his airplane. And these are document documentation that has come through Pierre Davenport, and it's, a lot of it's on tape. It's tape, uh, tape uh, testimony. And the scrambles were witnessed by a number of people on the ground. In spite of the fact the Air Force continues to say that uh, nothing happened, uh, well, they are obviously lying because <laughs> the pilots themselves came forward. Yes. And people saw them being scrambled and, 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 and more than one scrambled, uh, several sets of jets. And not just Luke Air Force Base. Monthan, uh, Mount, uh, Monthan, what do you call it? Davis Monthan Air Force Travis Base. Travis Monthan. Yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, I'm not real familiar with, with that because that seems to be skifty, but the you know, Luke Air Force Base thing is really quite amazing. And uh, yes. my thing, which is uh, kind of a bizarre thing, and I think it's really stirring things up right now, just, just barely starting to, is that uh, when I witnessed this way back in 1997, the first thing I did is check the weather because as I'm standing there watching this thing go over the top of me, uh, and it didn't seem to be moving very fast. I could tell it was very large. And I took what I call snap measurements, which is uh, a kind of a, 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 it's basically crude if you're not accurate with it, but I'm fairly accurate with it. I've done a lot of cruising timber and stuff like that in the, in the uh, contract with the Forest Service. And I've learned how to de determine, you know, by measurement and uh, time, you know, so many seconds and like that. And I determined the size and the speed of it. But, uh, the Air Force pilots determined that, other pilots have determined it, and other people on the ground determined it, and I ran into an awful lot of information. But we have a size, we have an elevation all the way from one to the other. And, uh, you know, the Air Force sent these jets out to investigate an intruder. And on the basis of that, the DEFCON 3 was called. And uh, the president got hustled away in the cabinet, whoever. Don't know exactly what happened after that, but we know that DEFCON 3 was called. So, you know, the Air Force has an awful lot. The government has an awful lot more to do with it than what they say. It seems I, like I it. Have to, I have to agree with you. And and they have. I think they've said as much. But, but uh, you know, that rests our case then on the fact that disclosure is not going to happen. You have 10,000 witnesses. You have Governor, Governor Symington <laughs> who came forward and said at first he had to poo-poo it because, you know, he was a political animal then. Yeah, but then he was even you know, making, 10 years afterwards. He was even he making said, fun of it. Yeah, he made fun of it and mm -hmm. had his assistant come in with the alien right. suit on. But <laughs> yes. but 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 yeah. in years in years hence, he came back and said, "Hey guys, I saw it. I was out walking with my wife. We both saw it. I'm here to tell you." Now, he did. You know, he's a former military flyer. He, he had nothing to gain by saying that, except I think he got it off his chest and said, "You know, I'm sorry that we made fun of all y'all, and I know how serious of a matter it was, and I hope you forgive me, but I'm just letting you know I'm one of you because I saw it." 
Yeah, there was a lot of um, recorded uh, 911 calls about that incident as well. They were all describing this oh, a lot. large, a lot. A, like a football-sized craft that passed by overhead very slow. So it's very unusual, the whole yeah, case. It, it, it seemed very slow. Very, yeah. A lot of what I've mm-hmm. written is, uh, is how illusion plays into all of it. Natural illusion, not, not anybody's hoaxing or anything like that. And people perceived what they perceived, definitely. But, but what people perceive is not always exactly the right thing. And there's an awful lot of ways in which natural illusion played into it. And by introducing those things into this, it all gets straightened out. And that's what I've been doing for 22 years, straightening this thing out because there's an awful lot of misconception. Understood. Mike, Ro- Go ahead. Mike Rogers, what, what brought you to Prescott at that particular moment? Well, believe it or not, I went there to visit a, a guy on the crew, Alan Dallas. He lived with oh. his parents in Chino Valley, Arizona, and I was on my way to Phoenix, just a, a business trip. And uh, I decided to stop in there and see him. You know, we were, we were friends, I'm friends with all the guys that were on the crew, especially after the incident. Right. He was kind of very close. But, uh, you know, I couldn't find him, and his parents weren't home either. I mean, I found their place, uh, but he wasn't there, and his parents weren't there. So I thought, well, you know, I've already been up on the rim in the White Mountain area trying to video the hale Comet, but it seemed to be dim, too dim. And so I'm trying, continually trying to – it was a thing that I just had to do, you know. I had to get some video. It was a, it was very large in size as far as, like, the visual – Fear, right, the visual image, but it was very dim. And uh, I went up on top of this hilltop. Actually, it's a, a mountain top, over eight thousand feet there. And uh, while I was trying to get video of Hellbop Comet, which is still very dim even there, uh, all of a sudden I saw these lights coming up. But they didn't come up from the horizon; they came up from the surface, which is very different from what a lot of other people say. And I since ran into people who witnessed it coming up from the ground directly from the ground. Yeah, that's one thing I was going to mention earlier about about it coming from the ground. I always thought that was interesting, interesting, and I I never heard anyone else say that except you, Mike. Yeah, well, there's not that many witnesses right there. There's only um, Hmm. a family of people, uh, uh, patrolmen, I guess, uh, in Paulden, Arizona, and then there was uh, other people along the way, but they were kind of skifty up there north. I was one of those. And of course, it was seen, at least seen from Nevada, but only seen. The amount of people think that it took, that it flew over from Nevada somewhere like Area 51, flew overhead and went, went that the direction of the uh, northeastern mountains, I mean, the southeastern mountains from them. Uh, but that was a perception. And I explain all that too, in a, in a, because nobody but those very, very few ever saw it. And if it would have, would have actually been in the skies of Nevada, thousands of people would have seen it. Las Vegas alone had thousands of people in the streets. We would have all seen it if it would have been there. But it's only those very few people, in fact, four people altogether, uh, two who reported in officially and two that I found in uh, Boulder City. And uh, it's kind of strange and it's, it's kind of bizarre. Nobody wants to think that way. I come up with a lot of things that are truthful based on absolute fact, but very few people want to believe it because it just isn't conducive to their particular desire. <laughs> And that's caused me an awful lot of trouble lately. Amazing. Yeah, I know you, you actually got a couple of people very angry with this assessment of yours. Yes. <laughs> yes. And you know what's amazing, even more amazing, is that two-thirds of the people who contacted me after those shows uh, agreed with the, with the uh, documentation. It's just too bad we couldn't get Peter Dav- Davenport here on the program with you. 
Yeah, we were that'd trying. Be great, but you know, if it had been originally, he would have he would have done it because we were friends way back when. Once I come out with this, he suddenly just while I was a nobody, I, I'm a I'm an apostate now. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, like Phil Class. <laughs> Oh, yeah, please. I'm the don't skeptic, me, right? But lose I'm not a skeptic. <laughs> I had a feeling you would laugh at that, Ray. <laughs> I, I, I want to just interject. First of all, uh, Mike Rogers, uh, that is fascinating. I find it ironic that you weren't um, out on vacation, per se, You at that moment. You weren't uh, out to get a pack, of, a six-pack of beer. You were actually going to be looking up a member of the crew, and what happens? Yeah. This big UFO shows up. I mean, the, you can't even the write that. Can't be. It can't be lost in anybody. That is just an amazing story. Amazing indeed. You can't. You can't write this stuff. Well, you know, it took me twenty years to get to the point to even tell anybody. A very because interesting. It just seems too bizarre. Too way too bizarre, especially what I have to say about it. And Down there on that hill, watching this thing go south. And a stiff breeze, cold breeze, blowing on the back of my neck, straight against my neck. I put two and two together, and the next day, I go looking for weather information because I could tell that this thing was carried on in the wind. It certainly looked that way. Now, I don't have proof, but I can tell you this. The documentation that I did get together, which is several pieces of documentation from the National Weather Service and NOAA, are to the effect that... The assumption of the believers and of the skeptics, the skeptics think of airplanes, right? They're both incorrect. What it was, Mike. I don't know. But I can tell you this, it was perfect in alignment. Uh, there was an, uh, there's a line of wind that came down through Arizona. Uh, it's documented, coming and going, round and a high altitude, the whole shot. And the path of that object, has, as is laid out on Davenport's UFO map, and the path of the wind are identical. Identical. Do, do you what think it's one of you? ours? Do you think it's one of ours or one of theirs? That's why I was hoping you could tell me something about <laughs> it because uh, I don't know. It certainly seems like it was created, and it certainly smacks of Air Force. Um, by the way, Mike, I do have that article that you had sent me where you mentioned making these claims on my show. I hope you still submit that article out there to different uh, venues. With actually, uh, <laughs> what, I, what what I gave you was about twelve pages, and it was very reduced. What I've done now since then is expand it. Originally, uh -oh. it was a 54-page article, which I copyrighted, but then I reduced the way down to 12, and that's what you know. Yes. Uh, several people have sent that, and a lot of people have asked for it since then, but in the, in the last few weeks, I've compiled uh, a new entire take, which is from the original pages, but it's still extremely concise because people don't seem to want to do much reading, and it's Sprinkled with the humor, just so that it lightens it up. Good. <laughs> it's got it's a little pal palatable, you know. Yes. But uh, well, it's twenty five pages now. Yes, and, and it's uh, mm -hmm. it's it's very very explanatory of the whole thing. Definitely send that over to Ray once I give you uh, the email. Okay. And, and Mr. Rogers, if this helps at all, in general, and to the best of my knowledge, which is limited, but the military whether it be the Air Force, Army, Navy, doesn't matter, is not in the habit of flight testing, top secret, never before announced weaponry in public areas. So it, just applying common sense and, and some experience, uh, I would highly doubt that the Department of Defense or whomever would fly a two-mile-wide 
plane, object craft, whatever you want to call it, and take it into a populated area and let it hover over the Phoenix airport uh, and that type of thing. It just defies uh, everything I know yes. and, and yes, common it sense. certainly does. It's so strange. Yes, I this, agree with you entirely. This large However, triangular craft. Go ahead. What it, what it, first of all, it was not two miles wide. It wasn't eight miles wide. It wasn't five. It wasn't even a mile wide. It was one third of a mile wide. That's going on all the testimony, everything that I've been able to compile. A third of a mile, maybe a little over a third of a mile. An actual figure I've been able to come up with by approximating, uh, smoothing the curve and all that, uh, 1,780 uh, feet. There you go. Still massive. And it's still massive. Still it's massive. still massive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's still pretty damn big. And but that's what she it's, said. But it's still within reason. It's, it's, it's actually the actual size of it is in within reason of a possible craft. You know, Air Force craft, but it's also possible that it was a deliberate hoax on the part of the government to find out exactly what people were thinking, hmm. what they were believing, their bias yeah. level, their, their their knowledge of science, their and their uh, their whole thing, an information gathering thing. It's very interesting. It might, might. You know, this is just purely speculation here. The only thing that's known for sure is the wind alignment. That's an absolute fact. That's undeniable. I was just, okay. and I was, even that oh, is something that nobody has ever decided that nobody has ever wanted to look at before. The skeptics, if they were real skeptics, would have jumped right on it because you could find that information all along. But they, but they decided, no, 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 it's a bunch of airplanes. And of course, well, the Mike, UFO public. Go ahead, Mike. Um, the yeah. woman and her daughter that I talked to were were driving down the highway at 70 plus miles an hour. And the craft mm -hmm. was not only keeping up with them, it eventually wound up passing them <laughs> on the highway. So yeah. if this was if this was a silent uh, dirigible, uh, I don't know any that can go uh, over well, 70 miles an hour. Yeah, so except, this, except I, for one thing, right? Testimony rules that, rules that out. No, 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 it doesn't, because the atmosphere winds that come about and this wind and weather technology and documentation that came across, okay, show that it was going just exactly as fast as you were saying, as they were saying. The Mike, wind at, that, at 9,000 feet Mike, above service. I know, but these the people wind said the craft, at that level the cr was the going that was, fast. The craft was 500 feet over their head, so, so you would have well, to be in a, hur that's, a that's hurricane. That's an illusion. That's an illusion. Well, that's that's what the eyewitnesses told me, and so uh, you know, they, and I would take your well, stuff I, I and their know. stuff. Yeah, I would look at it, but but that's what they told me, and so again, five hundred feet means you would have to have some really strange weather condition for a floating. It was a very strange weather condition. It was very very strange. It was okay. unique. It was an anomaly, but it's still documented, and it was not only an anomaly and not only documented, but but it but. Uh, the wind at that level, at that elevation, was going as fast as people could, could tell. It was going in, in excess of 65. It was going between uh, 90 and 65 miles per hour, depending on the elevation it was in and the area it was in. And it's all it's all there in documentation. I, I can only share with you what what I've been told, and and you know I'm not I'm not trying to debate your conclusions. I'm saying. 
from what I've gathered, and obviously it's not 22 years worth, uh, to me, uh, I, and I'm basing it obviously on very limited uh, information, uh, the two witnesses that I talked to at length said that it passed within a couple hundred feet over their car and it passed them and they were obviously fleeing for their lives. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll look at your info and, and I have an open mind. Hey, I wrote two books about UFOs. <laughs> yeah. Well, one, one, one point here I want to make there is this. You know, of all the thousands and thousands of people who saw this thing, they all saw something different. They all had different ideas of speed, elevation, size, and all that. But the thing of it is, is that out of all the witnesses, only 2% out of the 100% saw more than one craft. And those, uh -huh. those claims are incongruent even among themselves. They're obvious stories because 98% of all the witnesses only said there was one craft. And when you go by that basis and then you put it all together, regardless of, you know, humans are not perfect. People have different estimations of things all the time. And there were different estimations from, from, you know, a third of a mile wide all the way to eight miles wide. And there are differences in speed. There was everything from hovering above their house, you know, to, in fact, the people in Nevada said it was jetting away, supersonic. And I have worked on that and worked on that and worked on that, put it all together. But the main thing is this. If you have all these people with different ideas of speed, elevation, size, all shot, and there was only one object, what does that tell you right there? It tells you the whole bunch of people misestimated. Well, there's... Well, oh, go ahead, Ray. Well, you know, if, if, I, if I have to pick apart what you've just told me, the first thing I would say is, okay, so let's say that we had these very unusual winds and, you know, they, they struck the certain pattern. Now, then you go, well, geez, does that mean that the people who own this ship waited until the weather conditions were perfect so they could float this noiseless, dirigible <laughs> down a perfect yeah. path, which is which that's is one of, chosen that's by a Mother Nature? Right. And and so you see what I'm saying? It it, it yeah, I do. It do because it that's one of it my questions as well. It doesn't pass my simplicity test. It doesn't pass the Occam's razor, where where the the most the, the the simplest explanation is the most logical. And I'm saying I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying when I look at it, I have to apply my loving skepticism to it as a former 40 year scientist. And, and you and, should. Yeah, and that's that's what I do. And so I'm going to be delighted to see what you have, and 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 only share my feedback with you, and not anybody else. And and that way we just keep it fair because it's between us. Yes, very good. I can tell you the people who have seen this say, "Yeah, okay, all right." I, I'm beginning to understand. Uh, I haven't found anybody that refutes it except Peter Davenport <laughs> and then today. The thing of it is, they both have financial interests. By the in, way, in keeping the story, the what they what it is. Yes. And you know, anybody anybody is capable of that exaggeration. Everybody is capable of misestimating, and a lot of people aren't capable of hyperbole, just flat making up stuff. Well, that's another and, thing. That, exaggeration, yes. exaggeration is, is the worst, and and uh, a lot of people are are prone to at least slight exaggeration. Right, and but, I, you know when it comes right down to it, there's only one way. There's only one vehicle, one size, one speed, one direction, because everything else has to. It doesn't doesn't make any sense otherwise. 
Yes, and statistically, Mike, I'm so looking forward to seeing. <laughs> I'm so looking forward to seeing what you have because it's right up my alley, and I want to. Mike, is your last name pronounced Deacon? Uh, yeah, Michael Deacon, right? Deacon, uh, Michael Deacon, thank you so much for putting us together because I can see now why uh, you did because we Correct. do have this common sensibility about this, and I'd be just delighted to to see uh, what. Uh, Michael Rogers has there. Yeah, no doubt. And I was just going to quickly add how eyewitness testimony is often very unreliable, as statistically proven in a court. So I, I do understand and agree with you, uh, Mike, that you can't really depend on eyewitness testimony. Everyone gets things wrong. No one's perfect. That's just a proven a downfall of the human mind and the human psyche, yeah. rather. And, you know, when our incident mm -hmm. happened, there were seven people that all took polygraph tests for the same questions. It, it was still not proof. Correct. I was just going to quickly also add that the whole one of one of the theories, by the way, um, that I've heard are often described as this was a blimp. This was a hologram. It was military flares, Chinese lanterns, just some of the things I've heard. And I'm sure you've heard Everybody's those things. Everybody's tried to explain yeah. it. Everybody has, one yeah. way or another, because mm -hmm. it doesn't make any sense. I hope that what I've put together is something that makes sense. And yes. everybody that's seen it so far agrees that it does make sense. You heard that too, right, Raymond? What's that? Uh, just how there's different theories explaining what it could have been in terms of uh, the, the object itself. Like uh, it was a hologram, it was a blimp, possible lantern, all kinds well, of, of stories. Of, cor of course, but... We all have heard that before, Correct. you yeah. know, starting with, with Roswell uh, being the weather balloon. I actually have a chart, and we call it the um, Air Force Identification Chart. And what it is, it's just a bunch of uh, airborne objects. There's a missile. There's a Klingon battleship. There's, there's the, uh, the USS Enterprise. Uh, there's a weather balloon on it. And, and it says Air Force uh, UFO Identification Chart. And under each of those objects, that's on uh, this sheet of paper. Underneath each one, it's identified as a weather balloon. Except the weather balloon, it's been identified as swamp gas. Hmm. So, <laughs> swamp gas. Yes. So the point being is we've heard all that before. And as soon as somebody tells me that it's the planet Venus, if they're on the television, I want to reach through my cable network and just slap them once or twice. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, you and I think so much alike. It's it's funny. We've all we're, we've all been there, right? Because because it's it's ludicrous and it insults my intelligence and and ninety nine percent of everybody else who's listening. So, man, either come up with something different or keep your mouth shut mm -hmm. because we're not we're not buying it. We're never going to buy it. It was never bought in the first place. So, One you thing know, I like about you, Ray, is that you <laughs> are seem to be very unbiased and you're very scientific. And that's exactly the type of people that I need. No well, doubt. I saw, I saw a ship uh, about 90 foot across uh, the first week of December in 2011 in my own neighborhood, uh, about 200 feet in front of me and about 75 foot off the deck. And I had a sighting of about eight seconds. And so at that point, you go from what if to there is no doubt. Yes. 
Mm-hmm, and yeah. it, it was now, you know, five years after that, that I finally decided to write a book and, you know, come out with, with some of my ideas, but I saw a ship at close range and, and, uh, you mentioned Peter Davenport, um, a couple of times. I never filed that report purposely in his database. I waited and I waited long enough. And, uh, I would say about four or five years after my sighting, uh, I looked in his database to discover that there were five other sightings uh, in the area that I lived during that same week that I had my sighting. Mm, yeah, which 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 gave higher credibility to those sightings because they clearly were not copycatting mine. No, because mine wasn't in the database at the time. Yeah, I would say a similar thing with uh, the Phoenix Lights when when I saw that, you know, and everything I thought about it. And it was quite inspiring. It was uh, fantastic. But I didn't know anybody else had seen it for a long time. And by the way, just to add this really quickly here in terms of the Phoenix Lights, I was curious what your both takes were on the fact that we haven't had a mass sighting like we did in 1997. We've never had an an event like that uh, ever take place again. Why do you think that is, Ray and Mike? Um, Ray, go ahead first. Okay, put me on the spot. I know, right? <laughs> I, you know, I don't know if there's there's a cycle or or there was some of there was some world event that that uh, needed a distraction. Uh, I don't know if you know a, a nuclear. Uh, you know, there, there is a nuclear facility. Uh, you know, within uh, horseshoes and hand grenades of that sighting. So, you know, was that nuclear plant in trouble? I I don't know the reason that it was there. So that leads me to wonder, you know, when do these people show up? Well, in times of world war, you know, we've got uh, the Foo Fighters in in 1947, uh, Roswell, New Mexico area. We've got Los Alamos nuclear site. We're, we're, we're blowing up atomic bombs there at Trinity. We've got the 509th, the only nuclear armed bombing group in the world. And they're all within a couple hundred miles of each other. And these UFOs show up. So there appears to be a reason for that. I just have never done the research to try to figure out what that reason was at that time. You know, were they trying to disable nuclear warheads we had buried in the desert, which were close by? I I just don't know. It's just very interesting, just that simple fact alone that we've never had anything like that, never to that magnitude. It's just something that blows me away. Go ahead, Mike. I I have the same take the Ray does with all the other stuff. However, things are, are not necessarily following an exact path with everything. You can have all kinds of things happening at the same time and for different reasons. Now, if the Phoenix Lights object was man-made, then who would have, who would have made it and all that? Uh, it's the only thing definite about it, it, it would seem to be carried on the wind. What is definite and absolute fact is the wind alignment. The, the alignment of the object and of the wind are identical, and the, and the elevation and everything else, the speed is exactly what it was, what it was documented to. But the purpose of it can only be speculated. And if it was created by the government, for instance, there's no one I could think of that could create such a thing. Uh, it, it wasn't an actual craft. It was an object meant for the purpose and, for the, and flow, flowing right over the top of a major area and I think that, that this anomaly of wind might have been created. You know, you've heard all the stuff about the ability of the uh, government to manipulate weather. 
manipulating the wind is much easier done than manipulating weather. And it, this is just speculation. Remember that, just speculation. And if the government did this, it would have been done for the purpose of, of finding the actual temperature of the people. Exactly what they were thinking about UFOs at that time, because it was getting very hot. Uh, Michael here has mentioned that that was a very strange year, and things were happening, and, and it, was, it, was, it wasn't just strange. It was getting kind of heavy. Now, they may have initiated this thing as a purpose of cooling things down, but it could go way beyond that. And uh, and that could happen in spite of all this other stuff appearing to be for purposes, because UFOs definitely exist. Extraterrestrials are, are definite. Uh, but that doesn't keep people from from doing things that appear that way. You know, and the Air Force is notorious for doing things like that. Uh, not necessarily hoaxes, but experimenting with all kinds of things. And uh, so you can't use any particular thing, any particular way of being uh, as a formula for the whole thing. Well, I was just trying to mention, like, if you look at uh, Malmstrom, where the UFO hovered right over the base, right over the missile silos, shut down 10 of the missiles, all the witnesses and all the, the post-testimony showed that nothing was wrong with the missiles. They had to manually bring them back online. And it's as if the craft that everyone saw, the security police saw, the, the, the purpose was to give a message and say, you know, we can do this. Uh, your missiles are meaningless. If you go to Rendlesham Forest, the guy who was in charge of the nuclear readiness for the base, and, and Rendlesham, according to many sources, had nuclear weapons. The guy who was in charge of, of the nuclear program there said that the UFO burnt a hole through the bunker right down to where the nuclear weapons were. Again, it's kind of a show of, you know, who is in charge. Now, that was in 1980. And, and think about that. We had all these nuclear weapons on an Air Force base in southeastern England when, and they could have destroyed all of Europe. What was it? Was it a message? Was that the sole purpose of those guys chasing the UFOs around? I don't know, but it 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 well, seems that we yeah can those things are those things are definitely what you're saying. Yes, they are connected. In fact, everything's connected, but everything doesn't follow a particular subscription. You know, true. All, and so, this world is full of all kinds of things for all kinds of different reasons. I agree with you about this stuff about you know the the base that their intentions for nuclear you know. Uh, they're they're supposed or could be you know warning to us. I think all that is entirely viable, but it doesn't. It, it is not necessarily creating a formula for everything. I I, I agree, but I, I can't answer uh, Mr. Deacon's question about why haven't yes. we had another one? Uh, let's see, 1997. Uh, geez, I guess we missed the 20th anniversary, right? So we're we're beyond that. Maybe in the 25-year anniversary, uh, you know, there'll be some great disaster they'll help us with or, you know, they'll show up again. Give and, us and something. Maybe, yeah, maybe there's been a mass sighting, but it was to a bunch of people uh, on the, on the, in the Amazon. And, you know, they don't have any cell towers there. Right, so right. the story died. That's another possibility. I'm just... Taken yeah. back that we well, when it comes when mm -hmm. it comes to speculation, there's all kinds of things you can speculate. True, very true. And now I feel the need to go back to what I was saying in terms of these large conferences out there. And I'm not sure if you will agree or disagree with me on some of these things, but I'll share. Um, I've gone to numerous conferences, Mike and uh, Ray, as, as I'm sure both of you have in the past. And I had people looking at me like I was a weirdo. 
uh, at these conferences, I can't help but wonder who's being legit and and who's just over-exaggerating. And I recall going to the Conscious Life Expo way back in 2011, many, many moons ago. And I recall going to a UFO panel and about five or six people were there, including Giorgio Sukulos, uh, your boy there, Ray. And <laughs> I like him too, by the way. I talked to him a couple times in person. Um, I forgot how... Uh, I forgot how to set this up and what the context was of the conversation, but this gentleman that I, I won't say his name just yet, and, um, well, I'll just go ahead and say his name, uh, Stan Romanik. It was uh, Stan Romanik who was talking at the time at this panel, and for those that don't know, he's he's uh, the guy that made the whole uh, alien video footage. Uh, are you familiar with that, Ray? Absolutely. Okay. 100%. Okay, you understand then. So. His series, he was talking about his series and explaining the whole alien visitation. And for those that don't recall, he was all over a number of large media platforms discussing his alien sighting that he had on video uh, that was peeking through his bedroom window. And I never once for a moment ever thought that that footage was real. Even when I saw that footage at a very young age, I thought I'm not as naive as many of the others out there that would even possibly think that this footage was even authentic. Anyways, he's there and he's mm -hmm. explaining at the panel and he's describing how he's had this sort of alien visitation and all of a sudden he gets really quiet and he gets very serious and he goes, I was probed. He goes, I was probed. And when he said the words probed, his eyes were as large as the moon. And that's when a Giorgio Sukulos turns to the side and gave him like this weird look. And then a look back at the audience, sort of this just bewildered look on his face. And uh, needless to say, both myself and my father laughed hysterically. And about five people in the front turned around and looked at us. I mean, I mean, if you if you don't get any humor out of that, I, I, there's just no hope for you. That was hilarious. Yeah, I, I, I would have laughed too. I couldn't help it. I had to laugh. Uh, of course, I find, I find a lot of things funny. More things than people normally do. Uh, yes. I find humor in everything. <laughs> By the way, it's a sad conclusion for one Mr. Stan Romnick facing some time for a CP. And I wonder if he will use that angle uh, saying that the government was just trying to silence him. Ray, what, what's your take on that? What, can you uh, put that in a question form for me, please? Uh, Stan, he's also facing some time for, you know what he's facing time for, correct? Uh, why don't you enlighten me? Uh, child pornography. Okay. Hmm. So, so he's okay. He's facing time for that. So what's the question? I'm curious what your opinion is on one Stan Romanik and if he will use this sort of child pornography angle as a way to say that the government was trying to silence him. I don't know. I'm not Stan Romanik. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know either. Understood. It's a very sensitive subject. Yep, it is. Very, very sensitive. And I actually was in contact with the wife. She's a very nice lady. Very nice lady. It's just very unfortunate the way all these things played out. Very sad. Yeah, I, I, I um, you know, I can tell you that I am convinced there are people who have had experiences. And as, as, as Mike Rogers there will attest. Sure. Uh, and, and my, my new book, Victoria's Secret Truth, is a two year long study, case study of, um, uh, family that's had multi-generational contact and through 
my my experiences and my investigation and ha having the evidence made fully and 100 percent available to me everything i asked for i got uh for my review and uh names of people who could corroborate certain things i am a thousand percent convinced that the people in my book have they've had contact they've had experiences and and I know others, including personal friends, who until they knew that I knew about certain things or had an interest, hid the fact that they were also contactees. And these are people that uh, professional contacts that that I you know trust yes. a, a thousand a thousand percent. So when somebody like Stan says I've had these things, who am I to doubt when? I know other people can provably show, look at this is what's happened to me, blah, 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 blah. Now, uh, the fact that he got in, in legal trouble doesn't take away from his other story where he says, hey, I've had contact and I've been regressed hypnotically. And uh, it that that is, uh, in fact, uh, admissible evidence in court that a, a hypnotically uh, enhanced memory, the, the information that comes out of that is admissible in court is good enough for me. And, and, and I know that he's had that done. Dr. Leo Sprinkle was one of those who performed the, the regression. And, and uh, in fact, Leo, Dr. Sprinkle has also done my central character in Victoria's Secret Truth. So <laughs> I, I believe that's, that's worthy. And it's unfortunate that he got in, in whatever legal trouble he's right, in. Right. But from me, from my standpoint, that doesn't take away from his other story. I, I agree with you on that. It doesn't take away from the other things that are going on with him but what i'm referring to more is the video footage of the alien through the window uh, for that I, I just completely dismiss completely yeah that 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 looked a little bit hollywood to me but i wasn't there sure uh, i know i know a number of other people who have told me that you know it's dubious at best uh, I don't know what's going on there. I, I saw that on TV on, on some special and, you know, I, I never got to investigate the film. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to tell you. It's, I don't buy it personally, but it, I agree with maybe, you. I understand. Yeah, maybe it's somebody who was exaggerating because uh, they, they needed to sell another book. I don't know. Understood. And Mike, what's your take on that? Do you recall the alien in the window footage? No, I don't recall that specifically, but I do remember the alien autopsy. Oh yes, uh, which which was, in my opinion, a hoax. It was. But, uh, that's not conclusive. It's it just uh, seemed very much that it was. Uh, I'm a realist, so I'm not one of these people who biasly just jumps on the bandwagon and starts believing everything. And I'm I'm quite a bit a realist. I mean, it's got to be pretty factual for me. In fact, you know, I'm I'm a skeptic in one respect. I withhold judgment if I don't, if there isn't any way of, of saying that it is or it isn't. I would just simply withhold judgment. I'm not going to say that, that I believe, and I'm not going to say that I disbelieve. But I will say this. I have come up against something very, very definite about people in general. The human, a human being has the ability to exaggerate, at least to some extent, and almost every human being will exaggerate to some extent. Almost everyone, including me. <laughs> I don't anymore if I can help it. But I'll tell you what, I know when I was younger, you know, you talk, get in a fight with somebody. And so when you tell it to your friends, you got into more blows, you know, and, and they didn't. It just, it's just a natural thing for human beings to do. Exaggeration. That's true. Do you accept that, Ray? 
that there's a natural exaggeration in the human psyche that does exist. Um, everyone that I know has at one time or another enhanced a story. Right. Um, but I mean, certainly I don't know many people who've done it on an international scale. Yeah, it's a little different. A scale. True, but I, true. I will tell you, I will tell you that, that my experience uh, is that I have read some things that I know are inaccurate. Uh, and for example, um, I have found an error in uh, Travis Walton's book, called, you know, in Fire in the Sky. And I actually contacted Travis about it and he was floored. And he said, you're right. He said, you did find a mistake. It's a big one. And you're the first person to ever mention that to me. <laughs> Tell me what it was. That yeah. would be interesting. Now I'm curious. Well, um, what happened is, is um, hopefully he's corrected it. Uh, in there, uh, let's see. It is on page, it's uh, page 49. It's the first paragraph of chapter four. <laughs> And uh, the, what, what Travis is describing is when all you all have come down the mountain and you, you find that uh, set of uh, pay phones, they're outside phones, and you're going to call the sheriff. Yeah. And, and he says in there, uh, he's talking about Ken Peterson. Uh, he looked out the window and his breath is fogging the cold glass. Well, when Travis took me on the tour that day after we did the photo shoot at his site, he took me down and he showed me those two telephones uh, on that wall outside the building and said, this is where that crew made the call. Well, it turns out those are not enclosed phones. Those are two little metal-sided open phones that attach to a wall. And I told yes, him. And you know what? I, I know this because uh, he wasn't there when we called the sheriff. Precisely. I was. Precisely. <laughs> and, uh, I found mistakes like that in his book. Several things he assumed, you know, several things he assumed, you know, innocently, yes, but they are still mistakes. And you're definitely right about that. And, uh, and, and, you know, and, Ken and, Peterson was the one that called, but uh, yeah, his, his breath couldn't have been fogging the glass. It was exactly, that cold that no he glass, couldn't have happened. But the, the, the point I was getting to is not to say I'm smarter than Travis because I realize that piecing a book together is difficult and you can't be 100% factual because you don't have it all. But right. be that as it may, I have heard people at conferences say things that I knew were wrong. I've read things in books that I could prove were wrong. So that for you somebody, thought was deliberate, right? And, and in some cases, it's an exaggeration to make them look good. In the other case, and that's the case I forgive, it's the situation where they just gave the best information they had, and it may be slightly off of factual. That's fully understood, like the phone booth thing. Right. But, but I have seen people at conferences, big name people, spew out falsehoods in a exaggerated manner. And that's what I'm talking about. Audience to make the audience think that they've got some special information or right. to make themselves look bigger than they are. That's what I object to. Exactly. And that's what I was yeah. originally referring to when I was talking about the whole conference experience and finding out who is legit and who is just over-exaggerating. It seems like I, I have some personal experience oh, yes. about that. I'm telling you, going to these conferences and seeing some of these people face to face. And it's surprising because some people I went in there pretty skeptical about. And I actually talked to them after the conference one-on-one. -on -one, and my feelings sort of change 
But then there are those out there who are just completely mm -hmm. full of hot air. Well, I've been on the circuit, and I've been there on the panel many, many times, and I have some stories to tell about that. Go but ahead. One real quickly, <laughs> one real quickly, a fellow that's no longer speaking anymore, because when I listened to him, and I was sitting right next to him, and he goes up to the microphone, he talks, and uh, he was just starting out. It was his first year, and uh, it just didn't click. And, and uh, you know, I am an insider. I, I, I knew what was and what it wasn't. Not 100%, but pretty good. And so I got this guy's phone number, and I called him later because he was due to be there again two weeks later in New York. And I called him on the phone. I started talking to him, and I, I started asking him some strange questions. By the time the conversation got done, he admitted to me that he had made the whole thing up. Wow. And he never was seen again on the circuit. And who, who was this again, Mike? Uh, I'm not going to tell you. That's <laughs> probably okay. embarrassing. I don't have permission. Okay, I'm I'm fine. I thought I had missed the name, but that's okay. No, I didn't say the name. All right. Now I want to know the name. Good Lord. <laughs> yeah. Actually, well, not that's even... not the only time that's ever happened. I've been pretty strict with people over the years. Uh, once in L.A., I was talking about people on the panel, and I was talking about how uh, you, you talk about theory, uh, what do you call it, subscriptions or, you know, basic premise for all things to go by. Yeah. Well, I was talking about Telltale signs of truth and weakness. And I was talking about how all these people on this panel, not giving out any specific names, this kid I'm talking about was one of them, but everybody there, uh, Sean Martin, uh, whatever his name is, uh, was one of them, uh, you know, uh, gosh, I, I'm not going to go through names. Anyway, uh, later on, a week later in New York, because these people didn't like what I was saying about how uh, fantastic claims require fantastic proof. And I kept harping on that. And about bias, about human bias and the ability to make believe, the ability to just assume something that isn't true just for the sake of wanting to, you know, or for profit, especially for profit. Yes. And so on the, in the New York conference, I wasn't asked to be on the panel. And I had always up until then. <laughs> you you got the mad. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I didn't say anything directly about anybody. It's just that I was hedging on something that they just didn't like. Yes, and it's funny you mentioned that because this goes back to uh, Giorgio Sukulos because after those things that uh, Stan Romanek said on the panel, he goes and gets the mic and says, I don't exactly necessarily believe what everyone says at these conferences. And that's one of the things he said before he put the mic down. I thought that was pretty interesting. I thought that's probably the last time we're going to see him here, but not true. He's been everywhere yeah. since. That's interesting you said that because this thing in New York where they didn't invite me, mm -hmm. instead of inviting me, they all admitted that you shouldn't believe anything we say. That was said over and over and over by every one of the people that were wow. on the panel. Wow. Yeah, that's... They actually came out and said that, and I have all that on tape. I have all the conferences on tape. Lord. All of them. That's not good. Yeah, I, I feel like it was really rather remarkable now. that I had that effect, you know. You have to take a shower, Ray, you said? Yeah, which, <laughs> all this dirt all this dirt we're kicking up. <laughs> I know, right? But it's good that we're having this confer this uh this conversation, a, a very realistic conversation, not something that's, you know, all glamorized and nonsense. Well, what I believe is I don't want to have anything I believe come back on me later on or embarrass me in any way. I insist that what I believe is factually, actually real. And that's it in a nutshell, which means I don't believe in a whole lot of things. 
an awful lot of things I listen to, I hear, you know, I'm, I'm aware of almost the entire subject, but I withhold judgment. And I only believe in very few things as, actual, as far as belief is concerned. But I have friends who believe in everything, uh, yeah. just believe in everything. And when I try to give them any kind of a spiel about backing off, you know, just t- making things prove themselves or just wait to see, they don't want to hear it. Of course not. So, yeah. <laughs> bias. You know, there are several different kinds of believers. You've got the educated believer, you've got the middle of the road believer, and then you've got the, uh, what I call, eager believers. The eager believers who believe anything and everything. And I've gotten contacted by several of those such people by email who say, I don't give a damn about your facts. Oh, my. <laughs> I know I know with everything in me that that, that, that object was piled by extraterrestrials. Well, Mike, here's... Everything, everything in you. <laughs> there's some people out there, Mike, who fully, wholeheartedly believe in a flat Earth. And I've talked to individuals like that. Yeah. Or that we never went to the moon. Or we never, yeah. And he, all sorts of stuff like that. Some people are just completely married to their opinions. And yeah, that's when and the. A lot of them are government conspiracy things are very hardcore. That's where the confirmation biasness takes hold into everything here. Everyone, yeah. Yeah, everyone tends to do it every now and then, uh, myself included. And all of us tend to do that. It's just, it's never good. It's, it's bad human behavior to do that sort of thing. Ray, have you ever been considered to be somebody in the middle of a government government conspiracy? Have I ever been considered to be one? Yeah, have you ever saw proof of that, or anybody thought of you that way? Uh, well, people have asked me uh, on some of the, of these uh, shows like this if I thought that I might be part of a disclosure movement, and you know that's why uh, this ex government scientist isn't in jail for writing a book. Well. These people jump to conclusions because there's a process, and and I have to go through the process. When I write a book, uh, I I contact the Air Force Literary Office in New York and say, hey, I've got this book. Here's the subject matter. Do you need to review it? And they ask me a couple of questions. If I pass the questions, they say, no, we don't need to review it. Carry on. Have a happy life. So, you know, I have Mm -hmm. jumped through the burning hoops of fire that I need to, to get the book published. Uh, You know, I do all the right things. Nobody has overtly threatened me in any way. No one has ever said anything to me like you shouldn't write it because I'm not revealing any secrets. Uh, I I don't think I'm part of a disclosure movement because if you read my books, there's a lot of new stuff in there. There's also some new theories. Yes, there's some speculation, some snazzy uh, research, uh, some nice photos, but I'm not giving away anything uh, that's classified. So no one should have an issue with me. And the last I yeah. look, it's still a free country. So no, I I I've never. I've never heard that before. Uh, again, people have asked me if I'm part of disclosure. I go, well, if I am, I don't see where that is. And and no one's told me. So, you know, my answer is, uh, you know, positively not. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. So no one's called you a government shill. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's that's happened. OK, that's uh, happened. only a couple. It's, it's, it's happened like a couple of people go, hey, Mr. Cutout Man, <laughs> you know, the, They'll they'll leave something on my website, right, but, right. You know, but but they won't leave they won't leave their they'll leave a message, but they won't leave a, a an email address where I can respond to it. And I just go, you know, you're entitled to your opinion, and I just delete it and I move on. That's probably happened 
twice. Yeah, understood. Well, that's what I was referring to myself. I I was referring to individuals, not the government, but you know, individuals uh, being uh, accusing you of such. Because uh, uh, lately, I've been accused of of that, and uh, that happens. It's just pretty wild. I mean, I'm I'm fairly well known as a definite believer, and uh, for people to think of me as a skeptic now, just because I'm bringing reality to the table. It's not even my documentation. Peter Davenport, for instance, just thinks I'm a horrible person. And all I'm doing is bringing reality to the table. Yeah, by the I'm way, not telling people what to believe. By the way, Ray, uh, Peter Davenport seems to really have it out for Mr. Mike Rogers here. Why? <laughs> and, and, and I'm going to ask a question after I make a statement. And that statement is, I'm not trying to change anyone else's beliefs either, uh, Mr. Rogers. My my investigation and my writing, I'm not going to badmouth the government because I spent 40 wonderful years in their employment. And if a, a magic wand came down and said, you can be 22 years old again with a college degree and do your career all over again, would you? I would do it in a heartbeat because I work with the best people in the best organization. So my my writings are about my quest and what i hope to accomplish with this this writing about my quest one is finding the truth for myself and myself alone but in in along that journey i'm hoping i i write it in a way where it's more palatable. That's why I write it with humor. So people will look at the subject and go, you know what? I can read about this without being terrified. And, and wow. that was my, you write with that was humor? my objective. Yeah, Again, I'm surprised. That's the first time I was, I didn't take you as somebody who was non-humorous, but just for the first time, you said you write it with humor. And that is oh. very interesting to me. Yeah, in fact, um, Preston Dennett is one of the endorsers. I have four world-class endorsers for the first book, and he actually, in that endorsement, says it's laugh out loud funny. Huh, and I've heard that good. comment. I've heard that comment many times because that's exactly the way I meant it to be. But there's a lot of facts in there, and there's there's a lot of deep thoughts in there that people probably wouldn't want to be confronted with if it was served up any other way. Yes, it's, yes. A, it's a great way to deliver the same message. Thing, same thing with me. What I've written, except for the uh, scientific abstract, is spotted with humor, uh, and good humor as far as I'm concerned, but it's definitely a, a deliberate attempt to make light of a whole lot of things, but I definitely also list what is and isn't the humor. You know, I don't, I don't present something and make people think that, oh, I'm being funny here too. If I make a joke, I follow it up, you know, on the end in, in parentheses with the fact that it's humor of some type or another, or I, I give an ex explanation to it. Uh, but it is a spice of humor. Yes, that's the best way to connect with people. And before we turn the ship around and go back into your book, we'll discuss some of uh, your book here, Fifty Shades of Grey, Fifty, Shade of, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey's rather, uh, Ray. But aside from the Wright-Patterson case, are there any other UFO cases that have caught your attention, uh, not not including, you know, Wright Patterson and the Phoenix Lights incident. When I went on my quest to discover the truth, because, you know, imagine, you know, in January of 1973, my mentor who went on to become a member of the senior executive service. So he wasn't just an ordinary. Well, at the time, he was an ordinary mid-level engineer, but he went on to become the equivalent of a U.S. general or admiral. So let that sink in for a little bit. Mm -hmm. The guy that told me we have aliens went on to become a member of the senior executive service. 
And he, that meant he's a flag level official. So I don't think he had any special insight. It's just, uh, it is what it is. So when I went on this quest, I said, the best way to do this is to pick some of the best cases, the best documented that are pro UFO and go and put your finger in the hole. So I went ahead, I went to Exeter, New Hampshire, the incident at Exeter, you know, famous book by John Fuller. I went there and I found individuals who had new information, people who couldn't come forward or wouldn't come forward back when the investigation was being done about that famous sighting because they were in public positions where they could not afford to connect their name to this thing. So I did that with Exeter. I did that with Travis Walton. I did that with Rendlesham Forest. And I basically wanted to poke some holes. Well, in the Exeter case, I actually got to a guy who was a uh, teacher at the uh, famous Exeter Academy. And he went on to own one of the farmhouses that's central to the entire incident at Exeter story. And he backed up some of the stuff in a conversation with me that had been written in the book or other things that weren't in the book, but only he knew because he owned the farm later. And that is the farm over which this UFO hovered. So I did that kind of thing. And my approach was to try to poke holes in it. And what, and what happened instead, I wound up actually corroborating those stories. And, and that was like the first level of, of the truth being exposed to me. I was convinced that, that there was, um, evidence there. And I, I found new evidence. And I said, if I can't poke holes where there are many places to poke holes, then these are pretty strong cases. Amazing. And, yeah, that's in the way away. And Mike, what, what about you? Are there any other UFO cases or abduction cases that you believe are legitimate aside from, you know, your own? Yeah. Well, um, none that are 100%. But there are a few that are that are uh, leaning towards believability. Uh, that's the best I can say about them. Uh, some mo most of those things that I actually have leanings that way are things that have never been reported. There there are things that are very big and they were witnessed by a lot of people, and so I was able to investigate them pretty much pure of any sort of outside interference and any you know public opinion. But uh, uh, I can't really comment on those right now because they, they've never been in the public, so they wouldn't really mean much to anybody. Understood. Um, uh, you know, I believe in in the very good possibility of the Roswell crash, although I don't believe in it 100%. It just uh, seems very plausible. Um, and um, well, I'll leave it at that because we're we're gonna. I'd get too long winded if I get into it. That's okay. I understand. There are, there are a few, put it that way. There are a few. Yes, there's a few good uh, good ones out there. For me personally, outside of cases like Fire in the Sky, uh, the Zimbabwe sighting of 94, which I still find completely fascinating. Um, Ray, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Yes, the uh, school landing. Correct. The school children, where a bunch of school children saw something land, and they also saw an E.T. And there were so many kids that witnessed this, this uh, thing go down. It's, yeah, I've heard about that too, and that's one that I really do lean on. I, so that very, one may be more true than about anything else, really. Yeah, I really have a hard time, even after all these years. That was one of the first cases outside of Fire in the Sky that I fully believe that it could have happened, especially with that many kids. It's hard to get that many kids to tell a lie. 
in my opinion. Yes. Especially that many. I, I'm sure a couple kids, like 5'10", the, the parents could put them up to something. But when there's that many kids, and much later on, a lot of these kids, now adults, actually came forward and talked about these experiences. So it actually lasted with them throughout their lifetime. It, it's hard for me to look yeah. at that case and, and just completely dismiss it. Uh, Ray, do you feel that way too? Yeah, in fact, it's funny that you brought this up. Um, the film crew that was putting together the movie for that mm-hmm. br- brought one of the um, participants, one of the school children who was no longer a school child. In fact, a very lovely Woman. Uh, redheaded lady Correct. Uh, at, yeah. at the International Congress. And as luck would have it, um, I had a table at the expo. Uh, I was helping out Yvonne Smith. And she let me have half of her table. Well, it turns out that at that conference, the table next to ours was the group oh, wow. from that from that school sighting. And and so I had a chance to talk with the young lady and the, the guy who was the film director. And there was an, another person there involved with the film uh, at length. And I've got some wonderful photographs of us all together uh, during that conference. Uh, so uh, I got it. I got it firsthand. Again, I was right place, right time. Very cool. Uh, I got it. I got it firsthand. So yeah, it's a wonderful story. I love that story. Yes. I always thought if any story is true, then that would be it. That would be the one. Yeah, well, it's yeah. not definitely proven, but it's it's a really close. It's up there. It is up there. And by the way, Gang of Four in the chat room says, I live near the site of the original alien abduction, Betty and Barney Hill, which is another great pick, by the way. Uh, Betty and Barney Hill, when they were together, it was a time where that kind of relationship was frowned upon. And to me, in my opinion, uh, someone that's rational would think, why would you want that sort of attention? Well, that part, of, it, that part of that story does make it very believable. However, I want to tell you something about Betty Hill. Go ahead. She told me personally, it's been a few years back at a conference, that she had Bigfoot in her backyard several times and was able to converse with him. Hmm. So that kind of throws a certain sort of... A <laughs> little bit of a wrench in there. Water on the fire. Yeah. kind exactly. of does. It kind of does. And it's weird because lots of people that mention having sightings of Bigfoot or, or extra, not extraterrestrials, when they see a UFO, I meant, they claim to also have seen Bigfoot in the area, which is, there's some sort of strange connection. I've, I've had numerous guests uh, bring that point up. Um, Ray, how do you feel about that? The whole Bigfoot in the backyard well, and having well, a conversation with them? Uh, you know, I, I'll tell you what I think. I, I think when people see those types of things, and we can also bring drag Travis back into this, um, because, you know, he talks about uh, he pushed aside these little grays and then he got to a different part of the ship and then he saw these people that were Nordics. It's quite possible that these are what are called screen memories. And a screen memory can happen in, in a couple of ways. One, it can be induced into you by your captors, by your visitors. And there's a whole uh, neurological explanation for this and how they do it. And it's called staring. And, you know, it goes down the nerve canals from the eyes and well beyond uh, above my pay grade uh, to try to explain it. But your captors can put that in. And most most often or not, the people then report seeing, oh, deer and owls and, and, and dead relatives and other things that, that either comfort them or, uh, you know, are large eyed like their captors. And so that is induced by 
by by the captors. And then there's these uh, self-induced memories where the the person who's had the trauma slides back into a place of comfort, and they they might describe again seeing a, a dead relative or or they're floating or whatever makes them feel secure and and actually blocks out this traumatic event they had. So when so I hear somebody say. Oh, well, I saw Bigfoot. You know, it, it may just be a screen memory of some sort because, again, in my recent investigation with, with Victoria, um, that kind of thing happened. And, and we were able to break through some of those screen memories uh, because she has had four regressions hmm. by three world-class hypnotic therapists, which all corroborate each other, but also provide evidence of screen memory. So in, in the case of the Bigfoot, that's what I'm thinking it is. I, I'm not taking that explanation literally. It's just something that was induced by either the individual or, or by the captors. It's funny you say that because you remind me of uh, John Mack now. <laughs> yes. Well, that's a huge compliment. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Well, I was surprised to hear you bring that up because uh, not very many people talk that way. Uh, it's 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 too anti-belief, you know, to really get into something like that. But it's definitely a, a real part of of our life. It's it's a part of human experience. Uh, screen memories are are very definitely possible. But it's also in keeping with that, it's also possible for something like that to be a matter of personal exaggeration. So you, you have to consider everything. Really being scientific about anything, you've got to experience and take for granted the possibility that there could, there could be several ways to something. And exaggeration is one very few people ever really talk about. It's yes. like as it's tabat, taboo or something. Yeah, yep. people have active imaginations. But yeah, Betty, Betty, they're called, Betty they're was... called humans. <laughs> yes. Would you would you agree, Mr. Rogers, that that Betty was really generally not prone to exaggeration? Uh, I can't say that for sure because she seemed to talk in an exaggerating style. That was to me. Now people can change when they know they're talking to somebody that has a certain way of you know you know they're expecting something of her and they're expecting more than just what she would say to some fellow contact you or which I'm not. But she talked to me that way. But and, in her uh, own mind, though, in her own mind, she saw Bigfoot, and and it it could have been a screen memory. True, it could have been it could have been a I don't know a shaggy bear that you know walked through the New Hampshire woods. But in her mind, in her mind anyway, I think you know she, she I get the impression she trusted you, and oh, wow. and and you might have been one of the few people that she was she thought was would could accept it because of your background. Well, I certainly acted like I did. I didn't say poo poo to her, you know. But I just thought I'd bring that up because it's it's possible, yes. possible. Just like screen memory is, is is not just possible; it's also more than possible that a person can just exaggerate, make up something entirely, or just exaggerate and various levels of exaggeration to various degrees, and for the purpose of uh, you know looking cool or adding to what well, whatever I else that they have going. That's entirely possible. And all that has to be taken into consideration to really go the full gamut, the entire course with anything. That's true. But I, I happen to have read uh, some of Dr. Leo Sprinkle's um, uh, evaluative work that he did with the Hills. And um, 
my recollection of that evaluation is is that uh, neither of them were were, pr were prone to exaggeration. So the the reason that she told it to you might have come across as that. But but if I have to look at the other evidence, I mean, how much do you need to exaggerate? Uh, she said, "Hey, I was on a spaceship." I mean. <laughs> To me, yeah. that's the epitome. If you said you saw a Bigfoot, to me, that's several several rungs down on the wow, gee whiz factor. So to True. me, there's yeah. no purpose. There's no purpose of her telling you that. She just really trusted you, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, I know that. Yes, and I'm not. I'm not putting anything down here. See? Understood. Yeah. I'm not being a skeptic. I'm just saying there's an entire structure there of human possibility. No doubt. No doubt. And by the way, another gentleman in the chat room, the other cider, he says, Michael, please ask your guest if they've heard of Whitley Strieber and his abduction case and what their thoughts are on that. Thanks. Uh, Ray, I'm sure you're familiar uh, with one Whit Whitley Strieber. What's your take on Whitley and his stories? Well, I met Whitley at um, Contact in the Desert uh, three or four years ago. I'm a big fan of his. I read his his books. Um, in fact, I I knew he was going to be there, so I brought a copy and had him autograph it. So nice. uh, that kind of shows my bias right off the bat. <laughs> uh, so Ooh. that's good. That that's pretty much answers the question. Yeah, I think it's a compelling story. Uh, I I only had small talk with him. You know, five minutes of 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 fame with him, uh, but he came across to me as just being you know a, a normal person who. An, an ordinary person in an extraordinary circumstances. Uh, yeah, I, 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 uh, I, I believe, I, I believe uh, his story. Now, I can't tell you I believe every detail, but I believe that uh, he's a contactee for sure. No doubt. I've got a very interesting story to tell you about Waverly Street. Go ahead, Mike. And this one's the other, the other side. It's a, it's a believing thing, not a skeptical sounding thing. See, I was there. I wasn't more than 15 feet away from Whitley Strieber when he was speaking on a very rainy, rainy, whining night on the 50th anniversary of Roswell. And it was raining so hard, the water was running a foot deep outside the hangar, with the actual hangar, which this originally supposedly happened, uh, part of it, near that part of it. And uh, Whitley was speaking, okay? And he's a compelling speaker. And right at at one high point in what he was having to say, just like as if it was a movie production, right when he said it, a huge crack of thunder just <laughs> emphasized what he was saying. Wow. Like a, like a movie thing, like, like somebody <laughs> just cued the music right there. <laughs> so it landed a great deal of credibility to what he was saying. It was just sort of like the voice of God in a way. That's funny. <laughs> and this That's was the beautiful. 50th anniversary of Roswell. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah, that is. On the other hand, I'll tell you that I don't really um, go on. Just like you said, you don't believe every detail. I'm the same way with Whitley Strieber. Understood, understood. And yes, Whitley is a very interesting, <laughs> uh, interesting uh, individual. And he talks about his deceased wife a lot nowadays. And I understand the trauma. Uh, understandably. Yeah, he was very affected very, by that. Yeah, very crushed by losing his wife and very sad to, sad to, to see him that way because I have actually seen him at a conference before as well. And I was going to talk to him, but, you know, I didn't really want to bother him. He was going through a lot, I'm sure, even during that time. And 
he has made claims that he's essentially in communication with her, and that's where we draw into the paranormal realm. And Ray, I yeah. know I know you, Ray, have interest in that field as well. Um I'm very curious what your take is on his claims about being in communication with with the wife. And it seems like studies say between thirty to sixty percent of elderly widowed people experience this sort of phenomena that goes on. And even those that are in the medical field, the psychology field, they would say that he's experiencing a, a, hallu- a hallucination wow. of sorts. Um, what Would you believe that sort of take, Ray? Uh, I have absolutely zero experience, education on this to make any comment. So Understood. I, I, I have, again, I just tell people, you know, they go, they say to me, uh, I want to tell you something really weird. <laughs> Is it okay? Is it okay? I said, I wrote two books about UFOs. I'm, I, I, I'm no weird. He's pretty okay? open. Yeah. Yeah. So if he says it, I have an open mind and right. I'm going to say anything's possible. And I, I really uh, empathize uh, I, and I sympathize with him and I feel sorry for, for the man. Uh, you know, he's one of the first to come out uh, and, and, you know, get the, get the, the word out there about True. what was happening yeah. and abductions. And he's, he's obviously been through a lot and financial stuff. So, you know, peace be with him. If, if, if it makes him feel better to tell people that he's actually doing that, that's fine. I would listen to it. I mean, I, I won't go off and try it myself, but, but I certainly would hope that if it makes him feel better, then I would say, well, good for you. I'm glad that that, that works for you. Yes. And Mike, what's your take? In a way you're saying it's, well, in a way what he's saying there is it may not necessarily be uh, totally true. It's, uh, you know, say if somebody wants to do that, that's fine. If it makes them feel better, uh, that doesn't really say that you believe it necessarily. That's but correct. I'm in the same that's, boat. That's exactly, that's exactly yeah. what I'm saying. I'm, I'm, being, I'm being Switzerland again. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, but well, what, that's my take. Yeah, but what what is both of your general take aside from Whitley? Just those who make claims that they talk to others on the other side, essentially, and even those that are, I guess, well, I'll just leave it at that. Well, what's your take on, on well, that exactly? Generally speaking, it's possible. I think it's possible, but uh, you know, again, you're talking opinion, and there is no solid scientific proof for any of that. So you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt. Very true. I do like to stay in the realms of believing things that are tangible and there's burden of proof into it. Even though I am open-minded, I am doing this show, right? If I would start the show off by saying, what's your burden of proof of X, Y, and Z? I mean, the show probably wouldn't go that long. Well, then you'd be uh, Michael Shermer. (laughs) Exactly. There you go. My good friend, Michael Shermer. I can share a couple of of stories that um, I might have only shared uh, in one or two presentations to very small groups, but they touch upon what you just touched upon. Nice. Go ahead, Ray. So, so this, you know, again, um, I hope this doesn't blow my entire credibility Uh-oh. out. But in one case, in one case, I have a photograph to prove my claim. In the other case, I only have the story. So let's start with the story first. Um, I had to give a talk to a corporate board in Gettysburg because that's where the general 
the Air Force general wanted to meet, and I was to provide a briefing to the corporate board. And so uh, I drove my own car because from there, I was going to uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, for another meeting. So I was just going to drive the whole trip. Normally, I would fly in and out. So I got my car, I do the briefing, and I had spent a couple days in my spare time uh, taking photographs around Gettysburg, visiting places. And uh, the night prior to my departure, I was shooting photographs uh, at sunset, you know, the last several minutes with that golden glow. Oh, yeah. Uh, And I was hoping to catch something supernatural, but I went back to the room, you know, loaded things up on the laptop or whatever, and didn't see anything. So I went back the next morning knowing full well that I had to drive, whatever it was, two hours to Washington. And um, I didn't take any photographs. I simply wanted to walk through Gettysburg and uh, respectfully and just absorb what was going on. And nothing really unusual happened uh, until I got back in the car and my camera, and it was in a case with its lenses on the the uh, passenger side floor. And I got in and there was a, a two lane highway in each direction. Uh, I can't remember what, what number it was, but going to Washington. And when I got onto the highway, uh, I uh, looked over into the passenger seat for whatever reason. And I had an occupant with me and the occupant mm. was, yes, yes. It was, it was a full bodied, like the, like the guys in ghost hunters would say, it was a full bodied apparition. Apparition, right dressed in a, a union uniform that strongly resembled President Grant. Wow. Hmm. That's interesting. It seems like a lot yeah. of people see things out there. Well, I even it had wasn't a, just I, seeing things. Yeah. It actually sat in my car for 30 minutes. That's insane. As I, as I drove down the pike or whatever it was called uh, to get there, I kept glancing over thinking, you know, I must have, uh, underslept the previous night or something. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I had a thought of reaching for my camera, but then I realized if I were going to reach for this camera, it was on the passenger floor and I'd have to go through whatever it was that was sitting in a passenger wow. seat. That's creepy. <laughs> so I thought yeah. better about it. And, and so for the next approximately 30 minutes, I kept looking. I was frozen with fear. You know, I, I couldn't move my hands from the steering wheel. I couldn't do it. But I kept kind of I could only move my head slightly. And I kept looking over and I kept seeing this thing. I could literally see through it and see the passenger door, the inside. Uh, I eventually pulled over to like a, a gas station thing uh, to go to the restroom and and to to um, get some licorice. That was my go to snack on the road. and. I wasn't afraid of this thing, but but I must have been because I could barely get out of the car, and when I came back, it was gone. I don't blame you. Did you ever talk to him? No, I, I was afraid, but you know the way my mind works is I said I've got to figure out what this was because it looked so much like I didn't really know it, it looked like Grant until I went through some books and I was trying to figure out who this might have been in my car. Well, it turns out that. Grant's connection to Gettysburg, I think he visited there once when he was president, but it turns out that a few miles from where I stopped my car to go to the restroom and to get my candy is a place called the Thomas Farm. And the Thomas Farm is key to General Grant's life because he used the Thomas Farm for a couple of weeks 
to um, coach one of his generals uh, through some planning some big battle. And it's it's a it's historically documented that he spent a couple of weeks on this place called the Thomas Farm, and it was a big firefight. It's historical. So it turns out that he also uh, there was the, a big fair there in in the uh, whatever state I was in Maryland or or whatever, and and he had appeared there just a few miles away from where the store was that the apparition disappeared. So he had a historical connection to that area, yeah. which I found which I found fascinating. Well, I went and I visited that place a couple of years later, and they, it's now a park service place, and it's no longer open for tours, but they let me in because of a story I told them. And I wound up taking mm-hmm. photographs around the grounds and inside the house. It turns out that a dozen of the photographs that I took, the files were corrupted. Interesting. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? That means that a dozen of the photos I took inside the house – I could not recover the images. Now, I, I am a semi-professional photographer, and I've probably taken fifty to a hundred thousand photographs. And never did this camera ever give me a corrupted file ever. So that's that was, weird. That, that was that that was kind of a weird story. Yeah, that's incredible, really. And well, you're talking about digital photography, but when you say corrupted file, it's all kinds of ways of being corrupted. That's why I said. You know, what do you mean by that? Because are you talking through, about just totally blank or screwed up or in what way were it screwed up? Um, it, it said, um, it, you know, I would try to open it with all the software and I have professional editing software. It says file corrupted, cannot open the file. Uh, I personally tried, I made copies and tried to, to use file recovery software. It's impenetrable. I've taken it to a professional who said, I'm doubting that there was any photograph even taken. I said, but look at the consecutive numbers. It proves there's a file there. Yeah, obviously. He goes, but there's no content. I go, well, that's why I brought it to you because you're the professional. He goes, I've never seen anything yeah, like that's this. That's remarkable. Yeah. Very strange. So the other story is, if I might, I was investigating an old Ford in New Hampshire. And um, I took photographs of it because uh, it also had been investigated by the, the TAPS people. Oh, yes. So they were in there, and I don't can't remember what year I was in there, but I was up near – it was outside Exeter. And I took photographs, and there's a turret there because it's an old fort, and it has this huge blocks of glass in the turret. And one day for grins, I was just uh, enlarging all the photographs, and I found a face, a real face in the glass in that turret and there was no one else in the fort because it was closing time and they were shooing me out and I was taking some last uh, photographs and I'm absolutely sure there was no one inside the turret because I had just left and there was only one way in and one way out. And the photograph looks like, and I know this is funny, it looks like Rick Lagina from Oak Island. Really? Yes. That is really creepy. The face in the block looks like Rick Lagina. Hmm. Well, you know, there's a whole lot of stuff that I have studied. One of those, of course, is photography and also imagery. Um, I I paint. I, I paint photographs on my computer. Before that, I used to paint them with uh, pen and ink or, or with any kind of medium. Uh, all the photographs in, uh, or look like photographs uh, in uh, Fire in the Sky uh, are, are mine. The cover and the cover, several things. They look like they were photographs, but they're not. So I'm pretty familiar with that sort of thing. 
And I've also discovered that uh, faces are very, very easy to see. You can see faces in practically everything because that's uh, that's a human ability. It's a it's an inherent ability that comes from you know ancestry, whatever. Uh, we have the ability to see a face, so we put it together. We find faces in everything. Yes, that's called so, anthropomorphism. Yeah, okay, that's right. And uh, so when I hear about this sort of thing, I think, well, you know, what you're saying could be true, but it right. could easily be just simply uh, the mind. A face appearing because you, your mind yes. always captures a face first. It's very easy to find a face. The mind wants to see what the mind wants to see at times, yeah. I'll send you the file. Yeah. I'll send you the file. You can make up your own mind. Sounds good. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I would like to see that. I really would. You will. Very I cool. Promise. Very cool. And, uh, you know. I'll send you my stuff and you can send me yours. Uh, yeah. Exchange here. That would be good. That would be very good. And I was just going to quickly add my English teacher once went out there to do the whole reenactment of Gettysburg. And he had some stories as well. And when he told the story. I think I might have been only in like seventh grade. And after class, I asked him if that story was true or is he just making it up? And later on in life, I had seen him and I asked that question again about that story. And he says, Michael, I told you years ago that this did happen. And he, he was very, he just stood by his word after almost like 10 years. So he was not making it up at all. He really did see something out there uh, numerous times. And it's quite common to see something out there for whatever reason. So so I've heard, and I try to prove the night before my incident. And, you know, it might have been like the, the moral of the story is be careful of what you ask for. You just might get it. That's true. <laughs> and I was hoping it to get something on film. Apprehension. Yeah, I, I, maybe somebody said, hey, you're out here the night before and you're shooting photographs hoping to find some apparition, you know, floating into the, the, the incoming mist at night. And, and so we're going to give it to you in spades. We're going to put somebody in your passenger seat for 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, got to be careful what you ask for. <laughs> I have a story quite similar to that as well in regards to this program where I said, if I don't see anything at the... At, at contact in the desert, actually, a couple of years ago, I was on the show and I said, if I don't see anything out there strange in the sky or anything of that nature, then I'm just completely done with ufology. I'll never talk about this subject again. And wouldn't you know it, I actually experienced something pretty crazy uh, out there. And well, we're still here doing the show. Well, we want to hear yeah. about it now. Oh, I don't even like <laughs> telling the story, really. But um, I was basically in a hotel room and... Uh, the lights were pretty dim, and I saw this great ball, this great ball of white light just sort of manifest in the room out of nowhere. And this intense light, it, it was so intense, even when I had my eyes closed, I could still see whiteness all around. It was like someone turned on the most, the, the world's most powerful fluorescent light bulb uh, like ever existed. That's how bright this thing was. And it only lasted a couple seconds, but that whole experience, I don't think I'll ever forget that. Yeah, I don't even know I've, what well, that was. That, I, I've heard that before from multiple people, including friends. Yeah, I don't know what I don't know yeah. what happened, Ray, and I'm I'm not making it up. I don't I don't like to make up stories that are not true at all. I I'm a pretty straight shooter. I'm pretty transparent. And when this happened, it, it freaked me out. And it's something that still goes through my head. What the hell was it? We don't know. Well, what I think you saw was something that I've seen. 
and something that other people have seen. You see, I, I used to be, not very long ago, I mean, I didn't retire until about two years ago, but I installed lightning systems, you know, to arrest lightning from the sky because Mogollon Rim of Arizona is actually the second highest lightning strike area in the entire United States. That's a documented fact. And uh, so lightning protection became a big thing for me. And uh, I heard all kinds of stories from people. And the stories always surrounded certain things and happened in a certain way. It made me realize that what it is, is lightning has the ability. And I read about this extensively. Lightning has the ability to fly off the end of whatever it is it's following and continue as, a, as an entity. And it takes all on ball form. That's where you get in this uh, ball lightning and, and stuff like that. That mm-hmm. stuff is very real, mm-hmm. but, it, but, but it, it's, it's always short-lived. It's always very short-lived. I've seen it myself more than once. Very interesting. It's, just, it's a small thing. It's not a UFO. I never gave it any credit for being like that. You know, uh, I knew what it was at the time, and uh, I was kind of anticipating that one day I did experience it. But uh, up until then, there were people telling me stories, about, and, and, and I, I it, it figured out exactly what it is. You know, when you're doing lighting protection, you're using a cable. Ours was like a, a half-inch in diameter, 32-strand, 18-gauge bladed copper cable with a hollow core. And there's a purpose for all that. And the law says, the rules of, of, of installing these systems is that you cannot make any sharp corners. And the reason for that is because if you do, the lighting will fly right off the end of the corner and become a ball. Makes perfect sense because... Lightning is very high energy. Well, Mike, and, uh, I have a, situ- I have a situation quick. I would right. like you to assess. Can, okay. can, I, can, I, can, I, can I give you an instance and, and get your opinion on it? Sure. Well, I have a friend who is a, let's say she is a health professional, and she was with a client uh, in a building which is basically um, a hangar. It's all metal on the outside. It's completely grounded because at one time it it held um, military aircraft. Uh, It's been converted into a health facility. And one day she was with a client and they were walking around the indoor track that is there and they stopped and they paused and the woman got a weird expression on her face. Not my friend, but the client did. And she opened her mouth and out of her mouth came this tennis ball size of light, which nearly caused my friend to faint and the other woman to faint. And they watched this ball of light traverse pretty much the entire length of this building, which was about 200 feet, and then just blink out. Now, Uh I'm wondering if that can be explained it came out of this woman's mouth, floated floated a- across a two-story atrium, and then blinked out. Is there any chance yeah. that, that was caused by lightning? Yes. My my understanding of lightning, which is very thorough, because I was in the business for, for a long, long time, uh, along with the tree business, okay? But lightning is extremely uh, provable, predictable, but also very strange. It doesn't seem that it would do the things that it does, but it does, and I've seen it over and over and over. Uh, lightning is a plasma. It's, it's, a, it's an energy that exists almost unto itself. At least it takes on that property. And any time it's going down a track, something that is the least resistance to, the, to Mother Earth, okay? Because that's what all lightning is trying to do. It's just trying to find the center of the Earth, or at least the ground, 
which eventually becomes whatever it does down there. I guess uh, this this plasma, this electricity, uh, is so intense that just to describe the intensity of it, one one lightning strike can wipe out every electrical appliance and blow the wire and fire the wire in an entire eight-unit apartment complex. Just one strike on its way down to find the cable that leads it into the ground uh, under the meter loop. I've seen that over and over again. And I've seen this uh, ball lightning, so so as you call it, that's, that's a pretty good description. But something like that coming out of a person's mouth, one thing that people don't realize is that when people get hit by lightning and it kills them, if it's actual lightning they get hit by, it will kill them dead. Not only that, it will tear them completely open. They're, but but under the circumstances, but, what's that? But under the circumstances, they were in a fully grounded metal building uh, that is basically has a huge metal roof that spans 250 feet. How did the how did the lightning on a clear day get through a fully grounded metal building? That that's the fascinating part. So now now you got me thinking. I'm going to have to go back and find out what the weather was that day. Well, I'll tell you something. I had a friend get killed by lightning on a clear day with no lightning hitting at all. Yep. A storm happened down over the snowflake, 25 miles away. And the guy's uh-huh. wife, they were out hiking. And she saw lightning come snaking up across the sky from all the way down there in the heavy clouds and rain and snowflake. Like all the way up and bang, hit her husband and killed him dead. Wow. And split him open. Bummer. Split him open. I have been hit myself by something and you would think it's lightning, but it's not. They're called streamers. You see, lightning coming down from the sky in a split second, all the energy in the ground, somehow, for some reason, is not completely understood, but it is partly understood. These little fingers come up, and they'll go up to 150 feet in the air. And each one of those little fingers, just very quickly, I mean, a split second, are saying, pick me, pick me, pick me. I'm the closest route to ground. And lightning will only pick one, maybe two, but usually only one. And those things that go up are called streamers or feeders. And those those feeders are of, of fairly low voltage, voltage compared to lightning in amperage. Uh, you can get hit by a streamer and think you got hit by lightning, but you're not. You you were in the path of a streamer, and the reason you weren't killed is because lightning didn't pick that particular streamer. I've been hit by more than one streamer, and they're in the process of because you know, it's always in the summertime when it's raining and so that's the only time people really think about it most of the time is when they really need it then they want it, and then it becomes hazardous to get to install but uh that's to make the point about these streamers and it can happen on a clear sunny day somewhere lightning comes from i'm gonna have to go somewhere. back and do some research on this um ray i'm sure yes, yeah. i'm sure you have to do the same anyway uh a lightning can come from somewhere else it's still lightning it hits the building it comes down this lady was in a streamer, maybe a very weak streamer, and voila, lightning actually comes up or appears to come up, connects with uh, with, with more powerful lightning, and, and creates this image. And then it goes because it, it lost its path, and but it's still plasma. It goes floating off. And you know this stuff has been documented heavily. It, it's scientifically proven. Come oh, on, go well, thank, thank you. I appreciate it. Amazing. And you know, so many things in this mm-hmm. world are explainable and a lot of people don't want to believe it. Well that's true. They just don't want to believe it because they prefer to believe 
what's the most fantastic and the, the big story and all this stuff, you know? Well, they tend to believe what feels I, I good. Inside me, I'm not really... No, I'm definitely not a skeptic, but I am a realist, and all this goes into the heading of realism. Well, that's true. People tend to believe what feels good and not what's a fact at times, Mike. Definitely, yes. Understood, understood. And, of course, now we want to uh, go back and actually discuss your book, Fifty Shades of Greys, Evidence of Extraterrestrial Visitation to Wright Patterson Air Force Base and Beyond. Um, Ray, I, I'm very curious. What is something about the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base that the general public has no clue of? Okay, something they have no... Well, <laughs> uh, there's probably 100,000 things they have no clue of because Wright-Pad is um, a base that has a lot of uh, research and development facilities. It's the headquarters for Air Force Research Laboratory, which employs a couple thousand folks on site, uh, own several uh, large uh, laboratory buildings. Much of the work they do is classified at some level. Right. So there's there's hundreds of thousands of little factoids that, too much. That, they, that they don't know. Um, I, I guess if it's, um, you know, maybe we should go back uh, historically a little bit and then I'll, I'll, I'll bring it up to speed. Go ahead. You know, everyone, everyone has heard the association of right path to the Roswell uh, incident. And in fact, the, the first person from the Air Force to handle the material, Jesse Marcel, he said, look, at the stuff we had it was not of this planet. I can tell you that much. Two, I can tell you it wasn't a weather balloon. And three, I can tell you it went to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So you have an irrefutable, immutable statement by the guy who handled the material. Then you have a signed affidavit uh, by the guy who was Gen his name was General Thomas DuBose, and he signed the affidavit that said the material that came from Roswell to the 8th Army Air Corps headquarters at Fort Worth in 1947, and there's that famous picture of Jesse holding that swapped-out weather balloon. Yeah. General Thomas DuBose said, hey, the material, some of it, is going to Washington, and from there it's going to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So you have two people who were in the right place at the right time, who actually saw and handled the material, said it went to Wright Pat. Now, what that material was, we're not really sure. Most people who've read the history uh, of it from the researchers come to the conclusion that it was a crashed UFO or UFOs. Now, what most people don't understand is the answer to the question, why Wright Patterson? Exactly and why. Yeah, why right, Pat? And here's the answer to that. A lot of people, they, they make that disconnect. They lose the story there. The materials directorate of now the Air Force Research Labs was founded there in 1917. So by the year 1947, the world-class aeronautical expertise in materials science was at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So if you picked up a piece of something that you think came out of the air, uh, you don't know if it's our enemy's aircraft exploded or extraterrestrials, the first place you would think of to take it, if you're the U.S. Air Force who recovered it, is Wright-Patterson because that was the, the center of all material science back then. They were th the leaders. So it's a natural place. Then they had facilities, they had testing equipment, they had money, they had security oaths, they had fences, they had security police. So if this thing is highly classified as we know it is, again, it had everything 
that you need to examine this and possibly exploit it. And that's why Wright-Patterson Air Force Base was perfectly positioned, at least back in 1947. And I would dare say even today because of all the advances uh, that they've made in aeronautics and just the people who work at Wright-Patterson. And for the same reasons, money, contracts, they can buy expertise if they don't have it, security oaths, facilities, that type of thing. So Amazing. a lot of people don't understand that Wright Pad is the ideal place. And as an engineer at the base, were you involved in reverse engineering? Yeah, I, I was on uh, some projects that involved that. Uh, basically, uh, you know, they, they bring you something and they go, uh, we want you to look at hey, this Michael, particular. Oh, I, I, I need to interrupt you just for a second, but I yes. got somebody at my door. Oh, go ahead. Somebody probably important because they won't quit knocking and I've got Uh-oh. to go to the door. So I'm going to have to hang up the phone just briefly. I'll be back. Okay. Uh, I'll try this number. If not, you can call me. Give yeah. me about two minutes, okay? Yeah, go ahead. All right. I, go. I hope it's not the men in black. <laughs> That's true. And it seems like it was pretty important. He's gone. Yes. Yes. Oh, my. Uh, so I'll, I'll, fill, I'll fill your airtime in. So, yeah, uh, you get a chance occasionally where uh, something will be brought in, and uh, you don't know if it's if it's uh, not ours, uh, it, you know, but uh, – there's no reason for them to have you. For example, they they brought a um, uh, circuit boards and said, "We want you to draw this out. Give us a schematic diagram, and then we'll figure out what the circuit's doing." And your job is just to translate this thing with resistors and transistors and 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 diodes and capacitors, and just. You, Trace the connections, trace the traces, and give us a drawing, and and we'll figure out what this thing does. So, in effect, you're doing reverse engineering at at possibly the lowest level. You're just kind of uh, creating a, 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 in this case, a schematic uh, that a senior engineer would look at, and then they would look at all of the boards and figure out on a system basis, okay, what is it that, that uh, you know, is on these boards? Are they controllers? Are they, you know, sensors? What do they do? So the answer to it is yes, uh, but what it was, uh, you know, you never find out anything. You just give them a drawing. It's a one one drawing. You don't copy it, and it, it gets whisked away, and you never see it again. Understood. Everything is pretty much separate. Uh in terms of what you're working on uh, from other people around the base, everyone has their own little project going on. I'm sure that's what uh, your thing was as well. And I'm curious, by the way, Ray, was there ever an alien body at the base? Well, if we think about the stories, they say they brought the occupants of the crashed craft and they brought their machines to Wright-Patterson. And again, White Patterson would have been suited for this, whether, you know, the occupants were dead or alive because uh, they had a regional hospital. So they had medical personnel. They had equipment. Uh, I know for a fact that the building that the aliens would have come into would have been building 219, has a vault in the basement. They had an operating room. Uh, They had a morgue. So they had they had absolutely everything that you would need at least to take a cursory look at these occupants and go, OK, you know, we can do an autopsy on them to to the best of our ability. Uh, you know, we can photograph this stuff. So, again, if they're bringing the metals uh, and the stories say that the metals came here, if they're bringing the occupants and some of the stories say that they brought the occupants, 
White Pat would have been the place, and Building 219 would have been the place that they would have been uh, processed through. That's amazing. And Mike actually is back on the line. Mike, are you alive there? Yes, I sure am. Okay, perfect. <laughs> we were just discussing, well, I had asked Ray if there was ever at any time an alien body at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and he just disclosed that they had a room and all sorts of things. Go ahead, Ray, tell him. Well, I said that they had a place uh, on the base, and it was it was called the Regional Hospital in 1947, and they would have had medical personnel there. They would have had equipment. They had a morgue. They had an operating room. They had um, a, a vault in the basement, so they had a place where they could uh, store things, you know, uh, securely. So if there were aliens, and I'm going to announce this, I'm squishy on the whole. There were aliens at Roswell thing yes. because guys like. Guys like uh, Jesse Marcel never mentioned that. Okay, other stories did, but he just talked about the medals. But if there were aliens, they would have been brought into Building 219, and I believe they would have been processed there. Now, do I believe there were aliens? Not really. Again, I'm kind of squishy on the whole aliens at Wright Pat. Sure, but but I'm not discounting it entirely. It's possible. Very interesting. So you're not an exaggerationist then. No, I don't see why. I mean, it, it's best. <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't like, be. I, I, I have to look at the facts and go, you know, I look at Jesse Marcel and I go, I'm 100% sure that whatever they found metal-wise came the right path. There's such a no-doubter. But did aliens come here? I'm a little squishy on that. A little I, skeptic. I, I don't, yeah. I've yeah. not seen enough evidence never, to convince me of that. You've never personally seen anything like that? Uh, no. And if I did, I, I wouldn't tell anybody. <laughs> Of course. Uh, yeah. And by the way, that's I, what I was going to say, but also myself is that would you actually tell us if you knew something about the Phoenix lights that we don't know? It's a good question. I'm all ears. He's not commenting. <laughs> <laughs> I asked you a question. <laughs> no, I've, never, words, seen, if you, I've if never seen you did know something, you wouldn't tell. Well, you'll, you'll tell me. You'll have my email address. Okay. Um, amazing. And of course, I did want to mentioned this other gentleman's name i completely forgot about him and it's very important that i mention him uh, as far as any tangible evidence goes a good place that we could have had started was a gentleman by the name of gary mckinnon not sure if you are familiar with him mike or ray but i had briefly exchanged messages with one gary mckinnon for those who don't know gary he accidentally pulled off the biggest military hack of all time and hacked into NASA's computer system as oh, well. Okay, I heard that name somewhere before, so now I know. Yes, he yeah. he hacked into a lot of military bases, a lot of their computers, and he claimed he had found images of what looked like extraterrestrial spaceships. And after talking to him, I don't really think he made any of it up. He also went on to say that he had access to Excel spreadsheets, one with titled Non-Terrestrial Officers, and it contained names and ranks of U.S. Army or U.S. Air Force personnel, rather. And he went on to say all these these crazy things. And it's too bad because he was going to be a part of the program at one time. And once I asked him later on, he said he couldn't really do these interviews anymore because they ruined his life, he said. What do you make of these well, claims? they can do that. Yeah, what, what do you think about I that, I can Ray? believe they can ruin your life. And they Mike. certainly tried to ruin mine, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have it. I just wouldn't give in to it. I would not give in to their threats. Interesting. You know, um, I I'm, was familiar with the name. I just couldn't remember who he had hacked. Um, but you know, think about the revelation, okay? 
let's just say for the sake of argument that um, somebody on the base um, gets read into the program uh, and they actually see something they think is an alien body. Um, and then, you know, they they want to defect because I, for whatever reason, I can't see any benefit in, in making that announcement because like, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Rogers has said, your life will be ruined. Uh, there's no money in writing UFO books. I can vouch for that, as can my tax accountant. <laughs> so so you would you there's no benefit. You would bring nothing but misery and. Um, you would literally have to be read into the program. It would be very special. And you hear these stories about the plumber or the guy changing the light bulb, and he saw the alien. That's poppycock. That, that's poppycock. Nobody accidentally gets to see something top secret that they can take away and tell the world. It doesn't work that way. So, so it would have to be somebody who was part of the program and read in. And again, those type of people would see that there's no benefit to saying anything. So – you know, I'm just going to let that rest right there. One thing I know, because I know two Air Force, retired Air Force colonels who live right close to me, and they're good friends, and, and we've had a lot of conversations. They don't know anything, and I, and I know they're telling me the truth, and they were pretty high-ranking. Uh, you know, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing, and vice versa. All kinds of things go on in the government, and, and nobody knows what anybody else is doing, really. Sometimes they do, but not always, and most often not always. Well, you're actually trained to, you know, if you it, even if it's unclassified, the, the need to know can often be applied there. It, it's simply because it's maybe something you're working on. Uh, if there's enough, if there's enough dots put onto a canvas, uh, you have an impressionist painting, and you get a picture. And so, even if it's if it's unclassified, you just don't want to you know, let many people know what you're doing unless it's a fully public program because it could be connected to other unclassified information. And sooner or later, somebody gets a big picture of what's going on. So you're you're right there, uh, Mike Rogers. People who work next to each other for 30 years may never talk to each other about what they're actually doing. That's very true. Just That's like, right. um, yeah, I've uh, heard that many times. Just like Dr. Albert Taylor, who worked on the on the Star Wars project long, long ago, he was way up there, and he didn't really know what was going on with the other people that were working nearby. No one did. No one discussed anything. I don't think you're allowed that seems to. to be a, a governmental uh, policy. Correct. Yeah, you're not allowed to talk to anyone, really, about what you're doing. Yeah, only the ones you're supposed to talk to, and nobody else. Word. Very interesting stuff. And, of course, Ray, you do have a Fifty Shades of Grey's trilogy. When do you plan on releasing that work? Well, the second book is out. It was uh, oh, it's out already. Uh, yeah, the second book. The second book is Fifty Shades of Grey's Victoria's Secret Truth. Oh, that's right. And that's the that's the um, case study of a family that has had contact, and they made all the evidence. The book has got about I don't know seventy five photos, uh, m much of it uh, documenting their case. There are robust sections of the transcripts uh, from the hypnotic regressions that corroborate each other and, and give the reader a flavor for what uh, Victoria and her, her grandson have gone through. And it's uh, very intriguing. The uh, endorser on the book is none other than Dr. Leo Sprinkle. 
Very who cool. I mentioned several times. Yeah. Uh, he is a legend in, in the world of uh, hypnotherapy. And uh, he wrote the foreword for the book. Alive? Yes, he is. He's, he's like 89 years old. And I chatted with him probably about two or three weeks ago. Wow, that's cool. 89. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, wow. yeah he, he's up there in age. So the second book in the trilogy uh, deals with, uh, it's a nonfiction work. It's a, a case study of this family. And it's it's uh, very interesting on how the how I met this woman and uh, the strange circumstances that that happened under and uh, how I dropped what was to be the second book in the trilogy to actually investigate her case and how it took me nearly a year to convince her to let me investigate it. So all that background is included in there. Uh, again, tons of photographs. And now when I do talks, uh, I have a um, video clip. Uh, one of her first regressions was with Dr. Sprinkle, and it was a video taken, and I actually uh, take some excerpts out of it, and I let the audience see uh, exactly what she was telling Dr. Sprinkle, uh, and the, the revelations are, are, are you know, enormously interesting with uh, mantis and insectoids and greys wow. and being floated out. Uh, of a wall of her house and uh, her grandson being visited at night uh, and having conscious memories of that. So all of that is into the book. And the final book, I'm going to take a breather and I have no idea when I'm going to start it or when it's going to be finished, but there will be a third book. Eventually, yeah, eventually there will be one. Do you have a title for that? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> nice. It's going to be called 50 Shades of Grey's Nothing But the Truth. Oh, I like that. Wow. Very cool. That's and good. Yes. Very good. And Ray, we are running out of time here, but I do want to thank you for being a part of the program. It was definitely a great conversation. I'm glad that you take a realistic look at a lot of these things and you are quite genuine. You're a stand-up guy and I'm glad you were here with Mike Rogers. Well, thank you, Mike. It was so great meeting you, uh, Mike Deacon. It was it was great talking to you, and uh, hope we can do it again. Please give uh, uh, Mr. Rogers my email address so he and I may communicate. You got it. And, of course, you could pick up the book Fifty Shades of Grays and all the other works of Mr. Raymond Shemansky at Amazon.com. And before we cut you loose here, Ray, do you have anything on your mind or anything you'd like to relay to the listeners out there before we take this home? Um. I would say do your own homework. This is an interesting subject. It's endlessly deep, endlessly wide and tall. So do do your own homework. Read as much as you can, and eventually you'll establish that expertise where you'll become a smart buyer of information. For me, I was lucky enough to uh, actually spend the day with the people who lived it. You know, I was able to spend the day with Travis Walton. Uh, I was able to uh, have personal discussions with uh, some of the Rendlesham people some of the people involved in Exeter. So get out there, go to conferences, become a smart buyer. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being a part of the program. I'll definitely give uh, you Mike's email and both of you can converse and trade notes. And again, it, it was an honor to have you on the program and definitely we'll do it again. Thank you so much. All right, my friend. You bet. All right, good very, night. very good. Take care, Ray. Thank you. Bye-bye. And there he goes, ladies and gentlemen, that was Mr. Ray Shemansky, a great guy. And Mike, that was uh, fun. I'm glad you uh, hung out with me tonight. Yeah, my voice has been a little different because I've got a, uh, an allergy cold. Uh, well, it's not a cold. It's an allergy. It's me every time, this time of year. 
Yeah, same here. You know, when the cedars and the pines start pollinating, and uh, so, you know, this is not my voice, but I'm doing the best I can. You did great. I I enjoyed our conversation, and you added a lot to the interview. It was awesome to get your perspective on a lot of these things. And Mike, before I cut you loose, any final words uh, before I do anything you want to get off your chest or tell the listeners out there? And of course, Mike, I will definitely bring you back again, and we'll do another one of these kind of shows. Yeah. Well, the only thing I could say that's uh, like new is uh, the scientific abstract that I've talked about, which uh, gives the documentation and, and the basic word of, of the stuff that I found out about the Phoenix Lights will appear in the MUFON Journal very soon. Uh, and uh, I've been on several radio programs. I'm appearing again on another radio program on the 20th. Hey, Mike, by again, the way. Again, I can't remember the name of it. You, you had the title of that. Uh, I don't Mike, know if you want to give it out of it. Actually, Mike, Mike, when you are on that radio program there, uh, definitely mention my name. Uh, they, they tend to love that, by the way. Yeah, a lot of people have mentioned your name. Your show seems to be prestigious. <laughs> In fact, uh, Michael Sherman coming back on your show again is, it proves that. Now, I don't, I'm not a skeptic and I don't believe in the, the uh, philosophy of skepticism. Sure. But uh, uh, he's definitely otherwise, you know, he's a good guy and uh, he talks well. Definitely. And uh, mm-hmm. eventually, your, your show is gaining, gaining okay. prestige. Eventually, I'll, I'll have you on with him. We'll make that happen. That would be nice. It'd yeah. be a very interesting thing. I'll get him in there. He's a, a nice enough guy. He would probably entertain that. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you might listen to me as well. Who knows? We'll see. We'll definitely see. But, Mike, I again, I want to thank you tremendously for being a part of the program. And we will do this again in the near future, my friend. You bet. Oh, yes. Okay. Sounds good. Okay, Mike. Take care, and I'll, I'll send you an email uh, by tomorrow or tonight even. Okay. Yeah. E- email it or uh, text it, whichever. No problem. Uh, but thank you very much for that, and you have a good evening. You too, my friend. Mahalo, and take care and be safe. You bet. Right, bye-bye. Good night. Good night. And there he goes. That was, of course, Mike Rogers. And I want to give my appreciation to all the international listeners listeners out there as well that tune into the program. And, of course, those who listen in on the podcast version of the program definitely do love that. Love the listeners out there in the UK and Canada and Australia and, of course, France. Lots of listeners come from there all of a sudden. And, of course, the Netherlands and our wonderful friends in Germany. Sweden and Spain, and of course, all those in California who do listen to the program, which is completely baffling to me, since most people out there actually heard my voice in Austin, Texas. So that's quite stunning that our friends in California have really picked up and enjoyed the program. Completely shocked by that. And of course, a big shout out goes to those in Flint and Richardson and Houston and Austin, Texas, of course. Keep in mind, boys and girls out there, if you truly love the program, please continue to spread the word and tell people the show exists. Let them know what time it is and don't be afraid to do so. Also, keep in mind the podcast version of the program is on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, CastBox, and a couple other ones out there. Also, thank you to the great people at the Fringe FM. I return next week, same time, same place, same bat channel. Definitely appreciate you all out there on YouTube listening to this. And a special thank you to Mr. Mike Rogers and Raymond, Mr. Ray Shemansky, coming in here and dropping the knowledge. This was a great night, and I hope you enjoyed it very well. We 
kind of ran out of time. We have to keep it under three hours here, folks, or else this won't be syndicated anywhere. How terrible. Now, again, thank you in the chat room. Thanks for hanging out with me here tonight. We'll do it again very soon. I'm Michael Deacon, and with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody. at a remarkable idea, an idea that has intrigued and attracted and literally thrilled thousands upon thousands of men, women, and children. And you, my friends, are about to witness this idea become a reality, for this is the story of the miracle sea in the desert. Michael Deacon, Michael, Michael Deacon, Michael Deacon, Michael Deacon, Michael Deacon. Michael Horn. Hidden below the belt.